This is a conversation with Oliver Lee Bateman. He is a man of many talents, especially writing. Name any publication and he's probably written for it. From Vice to the Paris Review, Teen Vogue to the American Conservative, The Atlantic to The Ringer. He also spent three years co-hosting a podcast on U.S. politics and culture called What's Left. We talk about how he became a writer, politics before and after Trump, and why the only news you need is traffic and the weather. Bateman is also a strength athlete and a big wrestling fan, so we talk a lot about wrestling. Our top five favorite moments and what the WWF slash WWE in the 90s tells us about race and culture. By the way, the correct answer is The Undertaker, Stone Cold, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, and Hulk Hogan. I know, I know, I'm missing The Rock. If you like this, rate, review, like, share, comment, and all that. And if you're watching, the video on my side gets really bad at like the one hour mark because I didn't clear my browser cache or something. So as you podcasters out there, um, if you're using Zencaster, uh, make sure to clear your browser cache. I'm sure also if you're using Riverside or some other uh, you know product as well. Um, all right, so here's Oliver Lee Bateman. Hey, all right, what's up, Oliver? Hey, hey, Dan Malari, how's it going? It's good, it's good. All right, so I'm going to read your bio really quick. I um, I, don't know, I always get self-conscious when people like read. I feel like reading someone's accomplishments in front of them is always kind of awkward. Um, yeah. But I still, I'll still do it. Uh, so Oliver Lee Bateman is a journalist, lawyer, historian, marketing professional, and strength athlete. Oliver attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the Valparaiso School of Law, and held an Andrew Mellon Fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. Oliver has written for publications including Vice, Al Jazeera, Salon, The New Republic, Vox, The Atlantic, Columbia Journalism Review, The Outline, The American Conservative, Unheard, Teen Vogue, Men's Health, Washington Examiner, The Owl, and The Paris Review. He is a contributing writer to Mail Magazine, The Ringer, and Splice Today. From 2020 to 2022, Oliver co-hosted the What's Left podcast, a show that examined politics and culture in the United States. He now operates Oliver Bateman Does the Work, a podcast and substack devoted to essays, interviews, academic topics, and more. So, Oliver, how's it going? Good, good. Glad you had that show. You know, reading that aloud, I realized that like five or six of those publications have closed. Actually, I, I, I left. <laughs> like, they're gone. Well, I mean, that's like that's the whole that's the whole industry. I left a I left a couple off. I think there's like Hazlitt, VQR. Um, some of those are close too. I mean, those two are still going, I think, because they, they got some backing. But like, I'm also like the only person that's ever written for the American Conservative anti vote. I'm okay, pretty so, sure I'm the only. So I want to get only in, one. I want to get into that in a second. I feel like we're alike in one way, in the sense that like we we both do a lot of things, and I feel like when you're creating, you know, I hate the word content because I feel like it waters everything down, right? Like. There's no reason that like a $250 million Marvel movie and like a person like TikToking from their iPhone should, you know, the word, it should be described by the same word. They're just so far apart. Um, But yeah, it's all content now. And I feel like, you know, when people, I have a friend who's a, who's a politics uh, Twitch streamer and like he, like he's one of the biggest streamers in the world. And he, you know, I feel like when, when, when you do content, you have to kind of like pick a niche, right? The whole thing is you have to kind of be very specific. And, um, you know, you do music, like if you're, you might be a music podcaster, you might be a, you know, true crime, um, you get very specific. And I think for people, you know, someone like you, you've got so many different, you know, you're a strength athlete, you, you, you're, you're a journalist, uh, you're into, you know, pro wrestling. And like, how, how do you like find, like finding a niche? Like I, I see your, your sub stack, it's kind of like all about doing the work. So talking to people about work, like, mm-hmm. how have you found a niche? Cause that's something I've, I guess, struggled with. It's like, 
I, I did finance, you know, so I have a background mm-hmm. in Wall Street finance. So it's like, oh, I could do like a market thing. I could do a crypto thing. So I've been into, into crypto on and off for, for a while. I could do like a like a TV entertainment sort of thing. Cause I, you know, obviously the you wrote for the Simpsons, right? Yeah, I wrote for the, the Simpsons. You wrote for the slate, yeah, yeah. And black, but it's also like, oh, I could also do a music thing because I met a lot of kind of artists uh, when I was, you know, working, uh, you know, as part of like working in Hollywood. And it's like you have to kind of pick one. So uh, that's a very rambling way to say, like, how do you decide what to focus on? Well, in, in my case, it kind of happened that, you know, from my teen years on, I was always jumping back and forth from things, or like I would be really into something. Uh, and then I'd go to something else or I'd have like one hobby going and then another hobby going in the background and then another hobby. But as I got older, especially from my like late twenties on, and I started, you know, really selling writing on the side, I began to realize that there's two ways to do it. There's the one way where you can be hyper specific and you go all in on music, you know, like music's your thing. And then yeah, on top that, of that, that movie, what's that one movie? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off that that movie. Uh, yeah. Almost famous, right? Like almost like music, yeah. right? You know, yeah. Rolling Stone, etc. Right? Yeah, yeah. B. Lester Bangs, like who is in Almost Famous, you know, as that that character that the Hoffman plays, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays. Like be him. Like he's really into that one thing, real you know, real nerdy and like real. But I also began to realize you could, as a writer, if you just if your background, if your real interest, which is what mine is, is is writing. Right. And you have knowledge of these different areas because they're your hobbies. Your area could just be writing and you just write for other people as elements of what they need. Right. So I'm like somebody that all these different magazines on the right wing or the left wing or whatever can can ping if they need a piece on wrestling that's not too political. And they might, you know, or, you know, somebody else needs something on this particular topic and they know I write about it. That's that's kind of where I, I come in. The, you know, there's goods and there's good and bad to it. I mean, the good is I write for a lot of places and I've, I've just as a freelancer, you know, content is my day job too, but just as a freelancer, I, I've made a lot of money, especially in the past couple of years. The problem is everybody who knows me knows me for like one thing. So they're like, Oh yeah, you're the wrestling writer. Well, no, I'm also the culture writer and I'm the writer about this and I'm the writer about that. So you just kind of get pigeonholed by your audience rather than getting, and you never, you know, like it, it's hard for them to grasp that you're doing all this other stuff. So like when I launched the Substack, I was like, I want it to be about work and about, you know, the work that I've written about, like, that's kind of a unifying theme. I'm always writing about how people are working while I'm working. And I, I was just like, I got to, I got to find some way to let people know I work on all this stuff. Like, and that's been, that's been the fun of it, but you also become almost like I've joked about it with uh, friends. Like you become almost anonymous by virtue of how much you're doing. Like it comes out so much, like, you know, you might have four pieces out in a week or five and that's almost worse than having one because they're they're just, you know what I mean? They're all kind of like, I'm happy to get paid for them, but they're all going to kind of blow away without any impact. Right. You know, they'll come out. That's interesting. Also, yeah. I guess to, to give this, I mean, this is a, obviously a new podcast. Um, I'm calling it Not Another Industry Podcast, although I haven't, I'm not married to that name. Uh, no. I plan to talk to mostly kind of, right now the unifying thing is sort of media, like people in media in mm-hmm. one form or the other. Um, but I, I think the, the type of context I want to look at it is like, let's say someone is watching this and they're like, hey, like someone, let's say someone sees your, your byline or something and is like, hey, like, mm-hmm. I want to do what that guy does. Like, how did you kind of come to do that? So that, just to give a kind of an overarching framework to the conversation. That's- 
Um, but I think that's that, a great question. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah I, I, well, that's a be, great question. Yeah. Cause I feel like I, I run into people who are like, Oh, I want to write, you know, writing, I wrote for black, I wrote for the Simpsons. People are like, Oh, I, I want to become a writer. And like, on the one hand, I do have certain advice, which is like, there are a couple of books that are really good. If you want to write for TV, there's this one called uh, elephant bucks. If you want to write for a film, there's one called save the cat. But like I had a very fortuitous situation, which is that I wrote for the Harvard lampoon, which is like this gigantic pipeline from, you know, to, to television yeah. writing, like half the Simpsons writers were lampoon people. I want to say like a third to half of like the writers for 30 Rock, uh, The Office, SNL, or like Lampoon people. So it's like, I can give certain advice, but I can't, it's like, I can't be like, hey, so go back to uh, junior, I, I go back to your junior year of, of high school, do really well in the SAT, get into Harvard, and then, and then like, you know, join this esoteric random organization. Um, but, you know, I think that I, I do give the, the advice I can, but I want to like, you know, when I talk to people, I feel like there's going to be somebody who listens to this and it's like, oh, like, I like what, out, this guy does like I want to see how how he came across to do it, um, but yeah I think you're, you're really interesting because I came across you in like so many different contexts like and I think that I think that so doing independent content is supposed to kind of be liberating but what you say what you said earlier is like people you kind of become a slave to your audience right like if you're the politics guy like they want you like yeah. it's, I think of it like people on Instagram like they're these Instagram models who like every day they they, they kind of post their butt like they post their booty like uh, you know and yeah. like if they start posting inspirational quotes no one's gonna like people are gonna be like, I didn't I didn't follow this page I, I can't no. follow this page to see your your you know your your butt um and you know in scantily clad uh you know scantily clad and but also if there's a there's a uh, spiritual inspirational quotes page and that page starts posting bikini pictures. Like people are gonna be like, wait, I didn't, I didn't follow this. So I think the same thing happens when you're doing content, which is that you become a slave to it, but it still seems like having a niche, you know, like for example, Taylor Lorenz, like she just writes about freaking TikTok internet culture. And like, that's a whole kind of vertical, but I, so I, I do admire your ability yeah. to like kind of bounce around. Right. I think it's like really interesting that you can like, like I remember like I was, I was listening to like, the West Left podcast. So I had this period where I got really into politics, where I just became a hate. I, I can't just like hate white liberals, which is why I want to talk to you about how you like kind of, you know, you've written for Teen Vogue and like the you know American Conservative, and you've written for all these mm. different across the spectrum. I got really into politics, and I remember I saw your byline at the Ringer on a wrestling mm. article, and like I'm a huge, like growing up, I'm a huge fan of wrestling. Like finding out that wrestling was fake was my own personal 9/11. Like I it like bro, like I was just like, oh my goodness, this is this can't be like, I love, and I, I, we have to get into our top five or top 10 or whatever uh, later in the conversation. But like, I remember I, I saw you in there. And I was like, wait, the ringers, this kind of pretty woke organization. Like it's pretty, you know, like, like it's you know, pretty woke. And they, and then, but like you on what's left, you have kind of a very, I'd say center, right. Sort of point of view. Um, yeah, center. Yeah, I'm so, a yeah, Democrat. I vote that's, Democrat. But, all right. Center, yeah. center, uh, center, but not yeah. like, not like, not like an AOC, not like an, an L. Like I mean, no, not no, like, a, not like a, Tim Ryan. Yeah, not thing. a coastal, yes. you know, not a, not a coastal sort of liberal. No. And so I was like, whoa, like you're bouncing, you're operating in all these different worlds, and I find that really interesting. So I guess like, how did you come to sort of like do that? Like you just start, like I don't know how how does one become like a freelancer or a writer, you know, in, in that capacity? Well, my story of like professional writing, which even how it leads to being on that podcast and doing other things, it all starts with. I guess 2012, 2013, I'm working as a professor. I'd finished my PhD at Pittsburgh in 2012, and I'm in Texas, Dallas, Texas, at the University of Texas at Arlington, uh, you know, on the tenure track, teaching history courses there. And, you know, I'm always, I had just always been looking for extra money in my life. You know, I would do like, I'd show up and do like movie extra work when they were filming in Pittsburgh because they were doing that a lot or just anything that would what come movies film in Pittsburgh? around. What movies film in Pittsburgh? Uh, the, the third Batman movie. 
was filmed here. So I stood in the Warrior with Tom Hardy, the MMA movie. I stood around in the Peterson Center for that. Like 60 bucks, you got fed. You know, it wasn't bad. I was um, Blood Brothers, directed by the RZA. Oh, was I love here. the RZA. How do they treat you? So yeah. I, I, I have a, a, I don't know. I'm going to say, I'm not going to call it a horror story, but like a friend of mine was on um, Ballers on HBO. And like, you know, one day he's like, hey, let's like, you know, let's swing by set. Like, you know, he was off. He's like, let's go by the set. And like, and like, I love being on set. Like one of my favorite parts of writing for Blackish. And one thing I miss, you know, on an animated show is, you know, just being on set, like hanging out, like, you know, especially Blackish had the, the kids and like, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, a, it's kind of vibrant. Like, it's cool. And so I was like, yeah, let's go by set. You know, who, who doesn't want to meet The Rock? And I go there and they're shooting like a dinner party scene and they're like, the writer, the, I think the writer and maybe even the director were like, they like saw me like, hey, like we want you to be in this scene because the scene was kind of mostly like older people and they're like, oh, you're kind of young and, you know, cool looking. I mean, I'm not, that's their words, not mine, I think. Um, but so they put me in the scene and I was like, God, do I want to be in the scene? Because, you know, uh, continuity, right? Like you can't like be like, it, it was going to be shooting a kind of overnight and for continuity reasons, you can't like, like if you have to commit to it, like you can't like be mm -hmm. in one shot and not the other because it, it ruins the whole thing. That's right. And I was like, well, it would be cool to kind of just be in a random episode of Ballers. And I sat there and like the way they treat extras, I just left them like you, you they, you're, you're like cattle. Like you're like kind of, they, yeah. they just kind yeah, of stare you. Around. And like, I didn't get paid because like I was like doing it as a favorite or a friend. I didn't fill out the yeah, paperwork. Yeah. But it was just like, it left a weird taste in my mouth. Cause like, I mean, this is probably not the case in Pittsburgh, but like in Hollywood, there are people who are like, they've been doing extra work for a long time. They're just, they're trying to get that break to become actors and it's, it's, oh yeah it's not that here yeah i'm sure it's not that there but it just it made me feel a little bit icky like they're kind of treating people kind of like crap and these people it's like they're this is their, their closest proximity they, they'll have to like their their dream and it was you know i didn't love it but i, I am in a random scene of ballers so that is that's is oh, that's still something though i mean that, that's you made it you made it in the way you're always going to be there oh yeah i love know? it i love it and I, I took actually so I, I, met, I met the rock it was cool so there's uh there's like when I worked with the RZA, it was a different story because I got hooked up. I was the, they needed to film Blood Brothers, which never came out as far as I know. They had like some tax credit reason for filming at the end of 20, it was 2016, like two weeks they needed to film here. And they desperately needed a script supervisor. And I had never done that work before. But a woman I knew at an agency in town called me and was like, do you want to do this job? And I was like, well, what does it consist of? And she's like, You'd stand behind the director and basically keep track of the continuity on the script and other continuity, things as you there go. It is, continuity. Yeah. And so I stood behind the RZA, uh, you know, he's looking into the camera, I'm standing there for two weeks, you know, and it was a good pay. It was like 300 bucks a day or something like that for that span. And I hadn't re-entered, I had stopped working at Texas Arlington in May, 2016. And I didn't start in marketing at CBRE until 2017, this big company. So yeah, it like kind of it was one of those things that like filled the gap. But yeah, I mean, he seemed to be, I mean, he was a better actor than any of the low, these were all like scenes in the early part of the movie where it was like the childhood that was going to establish what happened to the two kids. And so it was like local actors that they had cast to be like the mom and dad and whatever. And it was clear that the Rizzo was a better actor than everybody being filmed in any of the scenes. and a lot of the scenes were like establishing scenes where like they had to get a car driving up a driveway or this thing at this time or this thing at this house. And it was just like, it, it was basically like the director of photography and the assistant director, like mercilessly pushing through these different shots that we had to get done. But he would go in and like, 
you know, basically act out every scene before we did it. And you know, this like this guy's just just cast him. You know, like, he wants the kid kids to do it like this. He was very animated. I mean, I, I was surprised at how good he was at that. Well, I, I think rapping and acting is like a natural because rap is such a you know rap your performance. It's almost like how you know models become actors because like models are used to being kind of directed and in, in front of you know having eyes on them and also are very attractive. Uh, like I think I see rappers becoming actors the same way where it's like you're, you're used to reciting lines, like you're used to be, you're performing mm-hmm. basically. Uh, so it definitely makes sense. Um, and so okay, like I guess your path from sort of professor to kind of podcast host to kind of, you know, I guess the, the writer and then the yeah, I didn't give you that. I didn't, I didn't give you the link. It happened because I was on the pit news when I was in grad school, which is the school paper uh, for the university of Pittsburgh. Like I was writing a column every week, you know, it's the humor column. But after I, after I graduated and some of the people I graduated with, you know, they wound up on staff at places like Al Jazeera America or national geographic or the Atlantic, you and know, what, and different jobs. Uh, were you in uh, just, or? No, no, I was I was getting my PhD in history, but I had a student in one of my classes like three years in who was like, you want to write a column for the paper? Well, you know, we'll pay you. Oh, and, gotcha, you know, gotcha, it could be gotcha. funny. They thought I was funny. So I started writing in there in 2009 just for the heck of it. And what really quick, I, was it was it referential humor or was it kind of like humor? Like was it like inside uh, it was, jokes or. It was it was. um it was called the mustache column of America. It's why my Twitter handle was mustache club us. And it was, it was very strange. Like, like it wasn't topical, but there would be like multiple columns on $5 pizzas, you know, in the Oakland neighborhood or, you know, just at like, and like constant references to the same things, column after column. So I'd like reference, you know, Peyton Hillis being on the cover of the Madden, you know, the Madden, whatever, you know, one that he was on over and over and over again for some reason. Or I, you know, everything else is just kind of incidental, but it would be themed to whatever they wanted me to write about. You know, give us something on renting an apartment. So it'd be this this kind of amusing thing on like renting a rat hole apartment in South Oakland in, in Pittsburgh, stuff like that. And it was, you know, the, the, it was really I was really like doing college content as like a 26 and 27 year old. So it was really like like you know, the joke was was there for me too doing that. But the bigger payoff from that was down the line, those people, you know, that was a good group of people I worked with. A lot of them ended up on magazines and they began asking me to write. And that led to other editors asking me to write. And that just over time led to other people asking me to do things. And even when I got on What's Left, I was introduced to Amy, who was the co-host, by someone else that I knew from the University of Pittsburgh, who was already listening to the show. I'd never listened to it. They were just like, you should, Amy, you should interview this guy now that your co-host is gone. And then she just asked me to like co-host the show and keep it going. I'd never heard it before. I didn't know who she was, but I'm a content guy. And gradually, everybody that's that's worked with me has sort of found this out. Like, if you ping me, like, and you're like, I need 2,000 words on Glenn Youngkin. And I'm like, you know, is that sick of me? How much is that going to be? And if they're like 600 bucks, then, you know, they'll get it. You know what I mean? Like, I'll piece that thing together, you know? Wow. And that's a, that's a talent. Like, that's, 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 that's how that has, it's, so it's kind of just as strange, and it's just as hard to repeat, um, 
but I have been able on my end when I found a good writer like my my somebody you should actually interview on the show is Ian Douglas at Streamglass on Twitter. He's like a you know Michigan educated guy, Northwestern educated guy. He's a black guy from Detroit, but he can just flat out write. Like I mean, he's a phenomenal fast writer. He wrote five hundred articles for Mel Magazine in eight months. Wow, like five hundred. So I was finally able when there was an obituary that needed like somebody that knew Japanese and like Japanese wrestling. Like Ian knew it. And I was like, Ian, can you co-author this with me? And they, he did. And since then, he's been interviewing, like he just interviewed Tony Khan of AEW, Samoa Joe, um, you know, Britt Baker, uh, you know, all these different uh, celebrities in the world of wrestling. He's been doing profiles for them ever since. So I was able to like, can't always guarantee it, but like when I know the door is going to open and I got a guy that'll make me look good when they hire him. I, I push him over. So he's somebody that I've pushed into like Mel magazine and some other things. I just got acquainted with him because I read a uh, wrestling autobiography. He, he co-authored. And which, who, but, which wrestler? Uh, Dan Severin, Dan, the beast Severin. Uh, he's since done four other ones, but I, I read his uh, Dan, the beast Severin autobiography. It's all really good. Everything he does is really good. And when I found out how good a writer he was, I was like, this guy needs to be doing, all this like all this media like he used to be in the ringer he needs to be in mel like he used to be in those things so i was just shocked but he's someone that i've been able to take my method and actually just apply it for him you know just to see if i can get him into these places and uh, sure enough I, i've been able to but really what's what's made it for me and what's kept me writing is just that i'm i'm reliable and i write for everybody um and, you know, my, my relationships with these magazines have never really been about politics. The issues have always been kind of cultural. Where I have a problem with the publications is like with Teen Vogue, where for like 150 bucks, they took, a, they took 12 months to publish a piece of mine. And then they basically rewrote the piece so much that it came to be about Friends. I've never watched a single episode of Friends. Me neither. I watched Seinfeld. I didn't watch like the equivalent, like this, this lame, like pretty person equivalent of it, but it's all in there. And my wife loved a piece. And she was like, I didn't know that you knew so much about friends or that you wanted to write. It. I was like, no, I just been 11 months. Uh, and then they finally paid me for it. But it's the strangest writing experience I ever had. I basically wanted to write an article for them about how the things you like right now in the future, people might say that they're bad. You know, and that's just how history works. Like you might like this show, but, you know, it's problematic 20 years down the line. Oh, yeah, and weird. then they made it into an essay about how Friends is problematic 20 years down the line. I didn't want to just talk about Friends. That's so lame. You know, plus I haven't seen it. Well, Teen Vogue, I mean, they, they everything is problematic to them except for, like, I guess, communism. Right. Um, but, <laughs> but I mean, that's that's very I mean, so it seems like you're like you really do a lot of this free, uh, freelance work. Like, I feel like. The, the perception outside of the journalism industry is that it's dying and there's, you know, it's, it's dried up and it's, and it I guess is. like a couple, well, I guess you said, like you said, a couple of places that you worked at, um, yeah. no longer exist, but like, you know, you seem to have been able to really put together a, you know, career, um, in a, an industry that people have said is dying. So that's, I mean, that's pretty impressive. Um, and then I guess what's left, like that's like it's for you to just stumble into that. Like I was looking at the the, the most recent episode. Truly you know, stumbled into it. It was like you a, you no had, idea who Amy was. Yeah, you interviewed like a congressman. Like you guys, you guys get serious. Like who's like probably, who's the, probably the biggest person you, you you had on the show? Like you guys, it's like a serious show. We've had a pair of senators, Jeff Bingaman, who was the senator for New Mexico for thirty years. I interviewed him myself, and then we had during the election 
uh, J.D. Vance, who's now the senator of Ohio. He won yeah, that uh, um, election over Tim Ryan, who I, I really wanted to, to win that. I thought he was a great candidate for that that particular state, like another Joe Manchin, potentially. Right. Yeah. Um, but he didn't win. Um, yeah. Vance won. So I can say I've interviewed two senators now. That's good. Yeah, I guess I, I, my perception from... I guess not reading you, but from the the podcast, I thought you were like kind of. I thought you were more center center right than center, but that makes that makes more sense. Um, I think that because things have gotten so polarized that like, yep. being in the center makes you seem you know it's like you're you might as well, well you be, may as well be right yeah, yeah exactly. you may you as may. well be right like that's part of what and I, I think that's the case like if somebody was like oh you know like you 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 thought that you know Joe Manchin you can understand why the people of uh, West Virginia vote Joe Manchin back into office. Well, you might as well be right wing, even yeah. if you're actually like from that region, as I am. Yeah, I think I got very just dis. I'm trying to. I don't know what the word is, but I was. I think like I think 2018 to 2020. I guess yeah, to 2018, 2020, 2021 ish, just made me become very uh, alienated and just disinterested in politics. I, I felt like oh, it's all just red yeah. team. It's all just red team, blue team. Like I think that you know, there's a ton of that. Yeah, I think that growing up, like, I was, you know, like, being black, like, you're just kind of automatically, like, liberal. And then, you know, yeah. going to, you know, being at Harvard, like, that's obviously a very liberal place. And then even, I worked at Goldman, like, I mean, Goldman Sachs is, like, you know, old money money and stuff, but it's still New York, it's coastal. Um, and obviously working at Hollywood. Um, but yeah, I think there's, like, I think things just got so, I think, I guess it's because of Trump, like, things just got so crazy. I think the reaction to Trump was just so over the top in some ways. It was, like, a little bit like alienating and there's certain things where you would realize like i remember um there was this, you know during the kids in cages thing i was like oh my goodness they're putting kids in cages and then um there are these there are these <laughs> articles well so then yeah. so there's a whole kids in cages thing i was like oh my goodness this is terrible and then i saw like a bunch of people were tweeting out pictures of kids in cages like you know saying this is awful and then they would and they'd be like oh that, that picture's actually from 2015 or 2014 and then they delete it and i think like there were like little like i think the difference was that like Trump was like separating them and Obama, the, the kids in cages from the Obama era were like, they came by themselves versus like separating. But it was just like, yeah. it was like, if I was like, Hey, like, you know, uh, like Trump stabs puppies. And it's like, Oh, look at these stabbed puppies. And it's like, Oh, actually th- those are puppies that, uh, Joe Biden stabbed. I'm like, Oh, well, heck, actually, uh, n- never mind now. And so I was like, Oh, this, it's all just kind of, it's, it's wrestling almost. It's just like, I unfailingly support my side no matter what. And you unfailing to support your side no matter what. So, like, what's the point, right? Yeah, that really was a killer. And, I mean, that was what I had in – that was what, sort of what I had in common with Amy. And, I mean, especially as I was coming on, I was really disgusted with how this worked in the sense that they didn't really leave any any ground for, like, complexity or ambiguity in the writing you were doing. I noticed that, like, between 2018 and 19, you know, I would be writing a piece – and the editor would find a way to shovel in a, like, Trump is the worst person alive kind of disclaimer. And I'm like, well, yeah, you, why, do you, why do you have to compromise my writing by putting that in there? Like, if you dislike him already, you know this. And it, I mean, it's and probably it's like a piece about gaming or something. It's probably like a piece that has nothing to do with it. It was. Really? Yeah, exactly. None of, none of my pieces really do. Even when they're in political magazines, they're about, like, baseball or, you know, like, random things like that. And they still find ways to uh to, like i did one on like steroids for uh, the atlantic in 2019 and there's a there's like some trump stuff in there like the state of being jacked in 2019 involved some reference to to trump they wanted me to mention my sexuality and race in that piece in 2019 and i just didn't put it in there because i i just didn't think that it, it was relevant um 
Yeah, like so, like yeah, I mean, like, what would it mean to like say like I'm married, you know, and and about to have a kid or something like that in in a piece? Um, they might have put my race in there. I don't recall. I know that the other part didn't go in there, but I'm like just weird. Like again, like that's I I, I can understand that. With the level of polarization is just such that there's no way to do this without having to like immediately accept the whole rest of the package, which wasn't the way it was in 2010, 2008, uh, at least in conversations that I, I'd be having when I was I in mean, school. Even, you know, even, it wasn't even, it wasn't that crazy. Yeah, it's it is crazy. I think that like 2016 onward is, is just so unrecognizable from you know from. And I think it's funny. I'm surprised you, that you only joined What's Left in 2020 because I I thought you know yep. I, I think I I discovered it earlier, but. Yeah, I think there was, such, another, there was another co-host. Yeah, I think it's such um, it's such an interesting time to like, because obviously there's so much interest in politics. Like uh, over you know from 2016 onwards, there are people who just all of a sudden um, became really really invested because there was this kind of boogeyman to rally against, and so it was a good time to kind of be making that type of content. But yeah, I think the polarization just got so crazy and everything just became like, like good guy bad, like you know like this cartoon evil of like these people are sitting around a table just trying to be evil and not like, you know, without any sort of a record, record, uh, just any sort of acknowledgement that there are like, there are pros and cons to everything. Right. Like it's the reason, like if, if you're like, Hey, like we're fighting for 15, we're fighting for $15 minimum wage. Well, why not, you know, why not $150 minimum wage? Well, it's like, okay, well that, because if that happened, then like, like so there's a tacit understanding that there's like, like every there's give and take to everything, right? Like if you increase, like if you increase the minimum wage to one hundred fifty dollars, then like small town diners couldn't. Well, a lot most businesses were out of business, not just small town diners. But you know, yeah. like there's a there's a there's an understanding, and even like with immigration, it's like if you put everyone who came across the border in like in like a five star hotel, you would just be incentivizing people to make a very dangerous trip. And so like there, but there, but during you know I think post post Trump, there was just no acknowledgement that there was any sort of nuance to anything. Like everything was either everything was just automatically like. Nothing was, there was no, there were no trade-offs, right? Everything was just the, uh, like the worst thing ever. And so, yeah, it was just very like, I think now like I'm in a point where the, the only news I really need is like the weather. Um, and like maybe, yes, yeah, traffic. you gotta know that. Um, yeah, I think, I think the weather and traffic, because otherwise like, like, why do I need to know? Like, I don't know. It's, it's I, I think I, it's like that whole era of politics just gave me, like, I was never really super into politics, but I was like, okay, like liberals are good and conservatives are bad. Um, was kind of like my the, the most I thought about it. Um, aside and, I, and and that I guess I like guns. Guns are fun. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like you know that was kind of the, the extent to which I thought about it. And I think post twenty sixteen we just had this really weird. Although I think like it's it's boomeranging now where like people are kind of fed up of a lot of sort of things. And now you have like Latinos voting. I'm mean, not all over the country as much, but especially like obviously like mostly in, in, in Miami and stuff in Florida. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, that, that like I think the the wrestling, like it's like you're you're you you kind of are in so many different pots. Which is like which is like your favorite, right? What's your favorite thing to write about? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, you just nailed it with politics. Uh, my least favorite thing to write about or even talk about is pure politics. I love talking about like with like you know Vance or especially with Jeff Bingaman, who's a senator for thirty years. I love talking about the behind the scenes operation, deal making, how you're going to advance in the primary, all the nuts and bolts. I don't really care about the issues and positions. That's just content writing like I do in my day job and I do for other people. That's just writing shit as you did at The Simpsons, you know, like that's interesting. But we know what the deal is there. I need to know how you move around in the backstage and how you connect and how you get more power and how you, you know, like how you advance yourself that way. Like what what makes you. 
what makes you succeed? Because really, what makes you succeed in a field? I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm like the most successful writer, but what's to my benefit as a writer is I just know a lot of editors. Like I have, you know, the numbers in my phone and stuff. And I they can text me rather than just emailing me. Things like that, you know, or I've met them. And, and they, they know you're reliable. Things. They know they can rely on yeah. you. But I, I got so fed up, like pure politics. I mean, to watch that shift from 2020 on where there were a lot of, I mean, I watched them like friends who were like straight up like pure Bernie, you know, Medicare for all, you know, $18 an hour minimum wage, $20 an hour minimum wage type people flipping into like becoming pure post left or then now like right, right people who are like so like, you know, so enthusiastic about this other side or like finding a new religion or this or that. Like, I thought it was corny to be too enthusiastic for Bernie, and I think it's corny to be too into, like, whatever is going on on the new, new, new right right now, or whatever that thing is. Like, it's it's, it's all corny, you know what I mean? Like, I the real, the real staying power and the real ability to work across all these places comes from just focusing on whatever whatever your topics are at hand and not, not going to war over, you know, like an issue like drag queens or something like that. Like I don't have, a, I don't have, like I don't encounter any of that. So I don't really have any strong opinions about it, you know, but online people have strong opinions one way or the other. I mean, they got the strongest opinions. It used to be until like 2008, you could just ignore that whole conversation. Now everybody wants to like make it clear. Like they want to find out where you're at on some of these issues. I, I'm not nowhere on them. I, they're, they're corny. Yeah. I think you know, the, the other weird thing about politics is that like you have to kind of be like, you can't, you can't, it's not a la carte, right? Like, I think that, like, it, it, you could kind of be like, hey, you know what? Like, I'm pro-choice, but, you know, I really like guns. Like, I think you should be able to have guns. Or, like, you know what? Like, I I support, like, workers' rights. I want a higher minimum wage. Like, yeah, we could tax billionaires more. But, like, you know what? And this is actually what Bernie Sanders' position was before. But, but you know what? Like, immigration, yeah, it's 20, yeah. Yep. you know, immigration, like, it, we can't just have a ton, you know, because that's going to, aside from, you know, not even the whole Trump, oh, the, the criminals and all that, but more just like, you know, the labor, it brings in a bunch of labor, you know, that's like tends to be cheaper. You know, like you can kind of like pick and choose and say, oh, versus now it's like, yep. no, you have to have like, you need to hate guns, be pro, like, you know, you, there's no, and I think that's one of the weaknesses of, I guess, the left is that like, I think there's this kind of quote that people on, I guess, the quote unquote left will say is that like, I'm not going to do, like, I'm not going to, like, why do you want me to do like, labor for you right like if you ask them hey like i don't really understand this and like it's like well um why i'm not gonna do like you know free you know like emotional labor for you whereas you yeah, go i'm not right, getting paid to educate you. yeah yeah i'm not, not being getting paid, paid to, educate to educate you whereas like if you go on the right they'll be like okay so uh this is why um your cranium determines i'm not i mean I, i'm being facetious yeah, yes, yes, they'll, yes. they'll, I mean, they'll be like all right like where, well where do i start okay so chapter one this is this is how jews control the world um this is why oh, women should, this, this is why women should uh you know this is why abortion should be illegal. This is why God, like they'll, they will, I mean, they love to educate. <laughs> like they'll, they'll educate. Oh, yeah. they'll, educate they'll do it for free. They'll, they'll pay you. Yeah, they'll pay exactly. you. I, it's like, yeah, I, I'd love to <laughs> recite all the things that I heard on like the Ben Shapiro show or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think it's a weird thing where people, you know, like, but you, you can't like, but I also think that like in my, you know, experience, like to be fair, I, I encounter way more people on the left than the right because, you know, I've been in, in these environments like yeah. Massachusetts and Los Angeles. But I think the other thing is that like, um, like I think on the left, you, you might be like, you know, what? like on the right, you might be like, hey, like I don't really agree with a lot of the things, but like I love guns. Like, oh well, come, come well, you know what? Like, come on in. Like, they'll you know get what? you in. That's yeah, like an entry. Hey, yeah, it's like a yeah. gateway drug. At least they'll get yeah, you in. Like, I've noticed some people have like committed 
and then they start picking up all the other ones because over there, like you think it's a la carte, but they start adding on like, yeah. you know, let's get a little pro life in there. Let's get a little, whereas yeah. for me, like coming from the rut, like the true rust belt, like, you know, and having a dad whose friend was the Congressman Jim Trafficant up in Youngstown, Ohio, who was all over the map, you know, they played college football together. So like they, you know, they're always, I mean, until the, till the nineties, I guess they kept in touch. Um, but oh, wow. they, like Trafficant was somebody who was like all over the place issues wise. Like he was a Democrat on union issues, but then, you know, he had like Pat Buchanan politics on immigration and he was just all over the place. And he would give these rambling speeches in Congress where he'd say like, beam me up speaker. And then he'd just proceed to talk about like ripping his pants or wearing skinny ties or something. That to me was a politician. And I was like, this is great. There's just this whole, Oh, and he's under, he was under investigation for like 20 years. At yeah. Least. So I'm, um, I am so, looking. I, I'm googling him now because I was like, "Wait, that's that yep. name sounds very familiar as a criminal." And I was like, "Wait, yeah, is this like a different person?" Yeah, he spent yep. 17 months in federal prison. Wow. Um, yep. What was yeah, that? yeah, he was under investigation. Uh, you know, for about 15 or 20 years of his work, maybe maybe the whole time he oh, was in Congress, just like uh, campaign yep. funds. I mean, I mean, I feel like they all probably do that. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It's just that you know, up in that area, like everybody was doing it pretty blatantly. You know, like my dad was under investigation by the IRS for like half of my early life, oh, uh, that same span. Kind of so like, yeah, yeah. So it's like the same, but it's that area, and that's how everybody. But at the same time, I was like, you know, he's not a great Jim Trafficant is not a great guy by any means, but like, there's a lot of he's kind of a la carte. Like, there's a lot of weird positions going on here, and like kind of yeah. unique, like esoteric. Like Bernie like, twenty, yeah, Bernie was Bernie like twenty sixteen. He had a little bit of it in 2016, like with the immigration and with the gun stuff. Yeah. And then he immediately got clapped back on both of those things. Wait, and and, and that like, was kind of the end of that. Well, so that's kind of funny because I think, I mean, there are lots of reasons why he performed worse in 2020. Obviously, I think it's easier to run against Hillary Clinton because like if you run against Hillary Clinton, oh, yeah. it seems like yeah. you win. Like, Everybody you know, proved that. Yeah, worked for Barack Obama, worked for um, um, Donald <laughs> Trump. Um, but yeah, I think that yeah, it's where like he, he just, I think 2020, he just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to do the thing where I just take Yep. the whole the entire menu and i think you know like i think that you know it's weird because i think there's certain things where it's like especially the, like the black community is actually very conservative like i think people don't mm-hmm. you know, and also immigrants you know like i mean yeah. one of the reasons obama uh, barack obama was you know didn't come out as pro uh, gay marriage until his you know 2012 until his second campaign was you know because he didn't want to alienate black voters um because black voters tend to be like more um more conservative more religious etc and i think that like you know, it's insane to me that like people on the, I guess the quote unquote left, which is, you know, obviously like a loose term, but like, you might be like, Hey, I agree with you on everything. Like, I think that, you know, let's tax billionaires. Let's, you know, increase minimum wages to do that. But you know what, you know, the, the, like, and I think this is kind of where <laughs> kind of Dave Chappelle is sort of, it's like the trans stuff. It's kind of, and I'm not speaking for myself, um, but like, it's, you might be like a person might be like, you know what? I agree with you on everything, but this one thing just, I just can't get there. Like I feel it just, it's so, you know, like it's so new. And I think it, it's, there's also a place of privilege. Like I remember it was 2014 uh, or 2013 and I had some this girl I dated in, in college. And like, I think I went down to, to go see her and she was like, oh, today we did our, she's like, today we did our PGPs. Like it was the first day of class. I was like, I was like what are PGPs? She said, oh, preferred gender pronouns. I'd, ne- you know, I'd never heard that. <laughs> but like, but because I went to, you know, this fancy college that is, that is Harvard, I was kind of, I've had a head start. Like, so I was like 2013. So I've had almost a 10 year head start to kind of start to understand like, okay, so like gender. So there's this kind of the way people think about gender is kind of changing and it's, you know, and so like, but imagine someone who had never, you know, who wasn't in these kind of schools and education stuff. And is like, you know, like imagine someone like, like your grandma or something who's like maybe black and like 80 something. And it's like, wait, like, I don't wait. Like, 
it's not like a place of hatred or ignorance, like, or it's not even a place of hatred, at least. It's just more like, wait, this is confusing. Like, I thought they're, you know, I thought they're too, you know, you're either this or you're that. So, yeah, I think that, like, kind of just writing people off as, like, bigoted or hate or hateful is just kind of, it's, it seems just kind of very short-sighted and silly because, like, you could, I mean, you could kind of educate them or just kind of accept it. Okay, you know what? Like, that's just kind of where they are in, on this thing. And, like, maybe they'll change. Maybe they won't. But, hey, they're with us on everything else. So, like, maybe they're still kind of a valuable you know, to have like it's like do you want your coalition to be like a country club where it's like only like you have to have this it's like a exclusive or you want to be like if you want to win you want to be inclusive um and so you know it, it's like politics as like designer handbag or something um but anyway that's like i don't, <laughs> I don't want this to be a whole politics podcast uh, although i guess you did host what's left um yeah yeah so it's all you know I've- familiar very familiar uh, well, and we, we talked about these very things but i mean these are these are the points that i mean that that's a big point and in fact if somebody really does have views that you see as like you know outdated or they're prejudiced in some way or they're they're just old time, like they haven't been updated like they haven't gotten the new patch of the video game yet or something like that really you know you may never encounter them to like to make that to like there's no, there's not really a good reason to complicate their lives or yours because your paths may never cross. Well, and also, the, but you the, still are voting for the same thing. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that like the patch, it's great that you compare it to a, a video game um, patch. And I guess this can just be the, the wokeness episode, but like the, the 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 patch is getting updated like all the time, right? Like I think that like yeah, like the, the every day it's like people Steve who, keeps downloading it. Yeah, it's like wait, like you you didn't believe this stuff until like two weeks ago. You know, like you'll see somebody who's like. It's always funny when people get into these like cancellation things where someone will like dig up old tweets and the person who dug up the old tweets, someone will dig up their old tweets. <laughs> and yep. it's like, wait, it's just like, yep. it's like a domino effect of like, hey, like the ideas are changing so quickly and being updated so fast that like pretty much everyone is going to be caught up in some sort of thing where like caught flat footed where it's like, oh, like a thing that I believed a year, two, three years ago is now considered retrograde, right? Um yeah, so it's weird. But I guess transitioning to uh, the next logical topic, wrestling. So mm-hmm. who's your top five? I think I'm going to say Undertaker, um, Shawn Michaels. Oh, Bret Hart. Undertaker, mm-hmm. Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart. Um, oh, Stone Cold. Stone Cold. Um, mm-hmm. Ooh, the fifth one is, t- uh, is tough. I-, I feel like I'm definitely free. I mean, I guess, I guess you have to say Hulk Hogan. I guess you have to say Hulk Hogan for the fifth yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going for the top five that are just like the kind of like tentpole big names of my era that that I've watched, I mean, it would be Hogan, then Bret Hart, then Shawn Michaels, The Rock, not Austin, and now Roman Reigns. I will kick John Cena off and put Roman Reigns on Mount Rushmore. My buddy Jonathan Snowden just wrote an article for The Ringer that basically argued it's probably he interviewed Roman Reigns and it was like, it's time to put Roman Reigns on the Mount. I think it's, and I, I would never have thought that in 2015, but he has, he has uh, really stepped it up. So I would say it's probably those five guys. Well, I, I, there's, I mean, there's other great ones that are, that are there, you know, like who, who miss it. Like Austin was great. Bret Hart was great. You know, the undertaker was great, but they're oh, not. Wait, Cena was did, great. I for, did I forget the undertaker? I, I said the undertaker. Right? No, you put him on there. You put okay. him on there. Yeah, I think. People, but I mean, he, he's like. I mean, like if you expand it at ten, that I would have to throw those people in, and then if you go to fifteen. Uh, but in terms of personal favorites, I mean, it's like Big Van Vader or Vader was my guy. Like I liked, uh, you know. Huh. Let's see. I, I mean, I, I loved, even though I saw him only later in my career, superstar Billy Graham. I loved Jesse Ventura. 
because Jesse Ventura could talk. So I love these like great talkers who are also like really muscular. Speaking of great, um, speaking of great talkers really quick, I think it took me, like, this was way before my era, but I remember like I realized one time that like, uh, what's, what's that famous promo? Um, gosh, it's going to come to me. But basically the entire Trump 2016 campaign was basically just a version of this promo. It's like, uh, he's saying that, um, He's talking about Ric Flair. I can't remember the guy's oh, name. Oh, Dusty Rhodes. You put Dusty hard Ro- times. Yeah, you, you put yeah, hard yeah, times. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great, it's a great promo. It's very vague, but it's tying into like the you know eighties job dislocation of, of I mean, the it's time. Literally, like, it's, yeah, literally every computer Trump, took your job, Daddy. Yeah, every literally every Trump campaign speech is basically the hard times promo. Like if you watch, if you go back and watch yeah. like twenty sixteen, it's literally just like the hard times promo. But um, yeah, that, I mean that's before my time. I watched. So I, I lived in Nigeria until so I was like six. So I watched like in the early nineties. Like you know, I, I used to be terrified of the Undertaker. I, I mean, I really like I, I thought huh. like the Undertaker and Kane were brothers. Huh. I thought that like yeah, yeah know, they did a nice job with that story. Oh, I believe. Yeah. I mean, I remember people would tell me when I was like maybe like let's say twelve, thirteen that it was fake. You know, and I'd be like, no, it's not. Like, are you like, no, it's not. Like they're bleeding and stuff. And I remember like the day that I realized it was, I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I guess I still watched it, but I think I never, I think I never really came back to it after that. Um. I did invite Stone Cold Steve Austin. To, so at the Harvard Lampoon, we like will like invite celebrities to uh, like um be like in uh make initiated as members, and it's just an excuse for us to like kind of meet celebrities that we like. And yeah. I invited Stone Cold when I was a freshman. Like he was really cool. Like he came and like he was he was really. Oh, cool. he came. He came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've but he he will do those things. Like he uh, he did some when I was on the board of the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Wichita Falls, oh, Texas. Oh, that's a nice the, casual. You were on the board of the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. That's. I, I don't want to spit that too loudly because, uh, you know, it, it closed recently due to embezzlement and uh, like a lot of theft and non-payment of bills. Not on my watch. I left and I'm on working with another pro wrestling Hall of Fame that launched in New York. Um, but the guy that ultimately who ran into a lot of trouble, Cowboy Johnny Mantel, he was like a lesser known wrestler, but he knew Steve Austin coming up. And so Steve Austin brought him on his podcast a couple times to promote the Hall of Fame. Steve Austin apparently will do nice things for people. Um, yeah. I mean, we so we would always pitch it as like basically we have a long we had. A, I mean, I, I say we like I'm still. I mean, I guess I'm a member, but I'm not like. Yeah, you always could be there. You're yeah. part of it. But the, the Lampoon, Brian, you. <laughs> yeah, okay. so the Lampoon, we, they would would invite like we would always just say like oh like these are the list of people who have come and like it's like James Brown and like it's all it's like uh, John Wayne. So we would say like this this these people like because we'll, we'll we'll get celebrities like let's say they're doing a stop in, in Boston for a show or something. We'll get them to come by or, um, and then also, you know, they're the connections of the actual alumni, um, who, you know, can get people, you know, who write for these shows. And like, one thing I learned when I was writing, I was like, I remember when I, when I moved to LA to write for Blackish, I thought it would be like one of those things where it's like, Oh, like you can't look, you know, the actors directly in the eye. Like, it, you know, it's like, they're like kind of up, like we're the little people and they're like up here. And if anything, it was almost inverted. Like the actors actually kind of suck up to you as a writer. Cause they feel like, Oh, like, these mm-hmm. writers like they write our lines like i mean it's so collaborative but they don't really th- know that so they think oh like hey every episode that's written by you know this writer i have a lot of lines like he must like me and so they really like it's like weird it's like and you it's like it, it was so weird you know because it's, it's like it's lawrence i mean I, like lawrence fishburne was kind of he's lawrence fishburne still but like you know anthony anderson trace ellis ross like there was no sort of like oh my god like you know oh crap like you know like they're the boss and we're it was very like collegial and like they were um you know very so I can understand that, like the writers, like like we had a, an SNL dinner. Or, I guess I organized it in the Thirty Rock dinner. Where we would have like we had a bunch of Thirty Rock writers and actors come, and like a bunch of SNL uh, folks come. Um, but yeah, I mean back to wrestling. Like I, I would. It's 
it's like so I never got into like the Cena Roman like I don't like anything beyond probably like two anything beyond the rock probably is like I I, I kind of checked like not even kind of I did check out like I checked out completely post the rock so I don't know anything I can I mean I I would probably if you show me a picture of Roman Reigns I would probably know who he was yeah, I, was like, yeah. I, mean, I know he looks like the rock <laughs> yeah I know I know who John Cena is obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well no Roman Reigns looks like the rock they're related so they look alike yeah I think or well, really Roman Reigns looks like the actor who plays Aquaman yeah so uh, yeah, yeah they, exactly. they look almost the same. well it's tough, yeah. I, I know that even though it's like you know quote-unquote fake like it, it is like it, it's a skill right like you to, to do the the, the it's yeah. acrobatic even the, the performing but I think that once I learned it was fake it was just like a little part of me like died inside and it was like oh wow. like, like it just it just was never the same for me um you had that experience. I had always, I had always known, you know, because my dad would just say, "Oh, you watching that dumb fake bullshit on TV," and uh, I would. So I just always knew, but I still that that, that actually caused me to want to watch it more because I just like, yeah, I'm going to watch it. This is dumb as hell, you know. I love it, so I'm going to watch it. Uh, but he also like he also told me later on, he's like, some of these guys can really talk, so you got to watch them and see what they they do, and that's that's kind of why I, I watched it, but. Yeah, so you had that experience of kind of figuring out, like, learning it was fake and actually, yeah, like, like having that my, Santa Claus mid, Yeah, yeah. Like, I never believed in, you know, I never, I mean, like, we were religious, but we, I mean, we still had Santa Claus and stuff. But, like, I never believed in Santa Like, that was my Santa Claus. Like, finding out wrestling was fake. And I think I had, like, maybe, oh. like, an older cousin who, you know, he was, like, oh. a couple years older than me. So he found out first and he kind of told me. But I was like, like, I was, in, I was in denial. I was like, no, it's not fake. Like, it's not, like they're bleeding, you know, like it, you you watch it. And I remember, well, I they, know, they are. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what it was that kind of broke, like that I finally learned, but I, I'm telling you, I believed every storyline, like, you know, that, that like when they would have the, the, the cops come arrest, like Vince McMahon or something, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I thought like, that happened a lot in that time period. <laughs> yeah. I would wow. think, uh, yeah, I thought, and I, the other thing that's funny, I'm surprised that, that Bret Hart is in your, cause I always thought that Bret Hart's kind of like a pet. He'd be in my top line. 10. Oh, you, you threw me your top, top five. You threw me your top five. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Shawn Michaels is I it's, it's like a Brett my it's like a Bret Hart Shawn E. Michaels either or and I gotta go with Shawn Michaels because he was the better sports entertainer. Yeah. Like Shawn Michaels is wrestling today. Like Shawn Michaels runs the performance center for WWE right now. So like he's training or overseeing the training of all the new uh guys that are coming up. And it's funny how they do it now. They just recruit guys right out of like NCAA sports programs and oh. girls right out of NCAA sports well, programs. And, and the and Not like guys who and Logan Paul or Logan, and Jake Paul. Paul, who, uh, Logan Paul, who can really go. Logan Paul uh, not only can talk, just like Jake Paul can box, he can really box. Like Logan Paul can really wrestle. He's credit to him. He's in great. Like he he out wrestled, if not, I mean, he probably out wrestled Roman Reigns in that match as a performer. He's a so, better athlete. I've heard. Yeah, I've heard people, even people who I hate like, to hate, say it. Yeah, even people who hate the Paul brothers and they're like, hey, like Logan Paul it. can really wrestle. Like, I've heard people say he can really wrestle. Yep. Um, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that, that as well. I How mean, about that? Like they have all day to train, I guess. And they were good athletes in high school. So yeah. it stands to reason, but they're still, they don't need to be as good as they are. Like neither one, like Jake Paul doesn't need to be that good at boxing. Logan Paul doesn't need to be that good at wrestling. I mean, I it's think, like they want to be though. Yeah. As I was going to say, I, I think they like, they, like you have to give them, they, they, they train really hard. Like they really do. Like yeah. they, they take it very seriously. Like, they're not just doing <laughs> it as, like. They really do take it seriously. But yeah, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, it's funny because wrestling is one of the few things that I remember distinctly from childhood where I like have specific memories of, you know, even like as a, like six years old and younger, because that's when I lived in Nigeria. I remember whenever the Undertaker, like, uh, you know, the, the Hell's <laughs> Bells would come on the belt. I, I would literally, I had, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, I had, I had we like, lived in like kind of like a, a complex, well, not a complex, but like a, 
a, a houses that were kind of adjoining, like a family sort of thing in, in Nigeria. And my uncle uh, lived upstairs from us. And I would always, like, we would watch wrestling and I would go out onto the staircase. Like, I couldn't watch The Undertaker's entrance. Like, it would scare me. Like, it would, it would, it would like, I was, I would be like, I'm out six, five, six. But I would, like, be scared. And I also remember, I, I loved Goldberg. And I remember one match. I can't remember if it was Goldberg versus Bret Hart or who it was. But Goldberg speared somebody but that person was wearing like a steel plate and so it knocked goldberg out and i was like oh my goodness yes like, yes that's I, can't a great, was it that's a great. I can't remember who it was um i don't well, know was bret, bret hart, hart gets hurt bret hart gets hurt during the goldberg feud and it ends his career actually Wait, was bret like, hart in wcw because goldberg was in wcw yes. okay yeah, yeah and that was they they feuded toward the end of bret hart's career when i think it was bret goldberg, hart then. i think it yeah, was i think bret that hart. was part of the goal i was part of the bret hart feud and during that same feud, Goldberg injured Bret Hart in a couple ways that forced him to retire by accident, not on purpose, and possibly even caused caused Bret Hart's stroke like two or three years later. I didn't even know he had a stroke. Um, yeah, yeah, Bret Hart hates Goldberg. Every interview that Bret, Bret Hart gives, and my, my friend Jonathan Stoughton just interviewed him, he gets like an anti-Goldberg line in the interview. Was that? He'll the- say like, you know. He hates him. Was the Montreal screw job? Was that Goldberg? Or, no, that wasn't yeah. Goldberg, was it? No, that's that Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. And uh, McMahon just, you know, Michaels is beating Bret Hart. He has him in uh, has him in Bret Hart's finisher. And then Vince McMahon just says, ring the bell. And the title changes. Because Bret Hart's quitting. He's going to WCW. And they got to uh, move the belt from guy to guy. It's the only thing that was a screw job was that Brett didn't want to necessarily lose there that night. And he didn't want to lose using his own finishing move. Okay, wait, for, the, for people who are listening who don't know what the Montreal Screwjob is, can you, like, explain in, like, layman's terms? Yeah. yeah, yeah, at Survivor Series 97, so in November 1997, there had been a long-running feud between Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. It probably stretched over, like, two or three years by this point. Bret Hart had the WWF championship, but he was a let out of his WWF contract to go sign for more money with WCW, which was winning the wrestling war at that time. And that meant, hard like, when you imagine, leave a wrestling... Hard to imagine that WCW was winning. Yeah. I mean, it was the Turner, Ted Turner's money, and that, you know, that WCW television, and Hulk Hogan, like, it was hot. And The Rock and Austin hadn't really emerged yet, as they would in 98, 99, Yeah, I, I can't forgive you. I cannot forgive you for not having Austin in your top five. I mean, Austin, I, I think no. Austin is under... I think, like, even though... So, Rock isn't in mind, but I think if you have to be... If you want to be objective, it's hard not to say... Anyone was a bigger draw than Rock and Austin. I actually, I think I, no, I mean that, that feud was, but I was always rooting for the Rock. Yeah, never yeah. rooted for Austin. Austin was old school wrestling, and I preferred sports entertainment by that point. The Rock was sports entertainment. He was like the next evolution of Shawn Michaels as an entertainer. Like the Rock was a guy who had like acting quality chops, like as a performer. Steve Austin had tons of charisma, but he's still old school, you know. Plus, the other thing is Steve Austin's career ended in like 2002 when he got it was, you know too many injuries. They caught up with him. He didn't have a long enough career. The Rock keeps coming back like every five years to do something. Yeah, he's well, and The Rock has done so much for wrestling at this point, whether it's his TV show right now about his childhood or funding or helping like get that vice show uh, Tales from the Territories going. That's like a weekly wrestling history story, you know, like he's done so much uh, and. And, like, his family in general now is, like, a quarter of the WWF main event, the WWE main event, is rock cousins. <laughs> all those Samoans are right. all, like, they're all dominating that company, and they're all great. Right. So, right. I mean. Well, okay, I, I, yeah, I, I shouldn't have cut you off on the, on the Austin uh, t- 
uh, detour. So, so Survivor Series '97. Bret Hart believes he's like it's scripted. You know, this stuff we now know is scripted. Yeah, he doesn't think he's going to lose there. He doesn't think he's going to lose. He thinks the finish is going to be different than what ends up happening. He he doesn't know how the title is going to get dropped. Like they haven't really hammered that out yet. But um, he knows he's going to have to drop the title before he leaves the company. He just doesn't want to do it in Montreal because he's Canadian. Oh, okay. He doesn't want to do it. He definitely wouldn't want to do it with himself in the sharpshooter, which is his own finishing hold that the other guy's putting on him. So instead, Vince McMahon does it in like the most emasculating manner possible in your home country. The other guy that you hate in real life beats you with your finishing move. Well, he hated Shawn Michaels in real life. Yeah, they just, they despise during that period, they buried the hatchet in the past like 10 years, but. During that period, yeah, they used to take shots at each other on TV. Shawn Michaels accused uh, Bret Hart of like uh, cheating on his wife with Sonny, who was a uh, you know the real hot woman and one of the hot women in the WWF yeah. at that time. Yeah, uh, um, most downloaded woman oh, on AOL, nineteen ninety six. Oh yeah, don't don't get me started. So like no. Shawn Michaels even at a promo says at one point he's like Bret, you've been having a lot of sunny days lately. And uh, <laughs> don't get me started. On you know this is kind of stuff going on. Uh, um, there's one, there's one where like Brett calls, uh, he comes out and like, it's not script, like it's not scripted. He's not supposed to say it. Triple H and Shawn Michaels are in the ring and uh, Brett calls them a pair of homos and Triple H gra- grabs the mic and goes, I'm no queer. And like to hear this, this guy's running a company, well, you it, know, it's and I, I've done an article, which I interviewed that dude, like, and he's now like a professional suit, you know, like, but there he is in 97, like, I'm no queer. Wait, who, right, right there the on. Oh, oh hey, Triple H. Yeah, Triple yeah, H. Triple yeah. H. Yeah, yeah. Just I like, mean, you it, know, it, saying it. Well, it was a different time. Yeah, well, two things. But they one, hated each other. Yeah, two things. One, the woman. Yeah, that was, I mean, what, it was like uh, Lita, Carrie Sable, Trish Stratus. That was, uh, yep, that, Trish Stratus. That, yeah, yeah. That got a lot of uh, people. Um, I mean, based on what happened to Vince McMahon recently with all the sexual harassment stuff that got him forced out. I mean, who knows what he was doing with those ladies yeah, or all yeah. the ladies? I mean, um, possibly a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, I mean $19 million it cost WWF. Uh, yeah. At least. Insane. Um, yeah. That's it's, insane. Uh, yeah. That, that made a lot of, uh, a lot of WWE fans grow. Carrie uh, uh, Sable and Trish. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Yeah. They, that, they were, they were, they were important uh, things in people's childhood or adult, you know, teenage years in my case. Yeah. I think uh, another, spe- another specific memory I have. So I, I do, I remember any, any uh, intro of, uh, Oh, Paul bearer. Also. I mean, that guy gave yeah. me nightmares. Paul bearer. He was a real Big Paul bearer. Yeah. He was a, he was a real mortician yeah, the, in real yeah, life. That was the, his deal. The makeup, the caked makeup on him. I mean, that was, I mean, those are some. So strange looking. Yeah. Really strange looking. Yeah. And like would really ham it up for the camera. Like, I mean, he he looked strange already and then would take it, you know, to 10. Uh, All those facial expressions. Yeah. The other thing I'll never forget is when um, Hulk Hogan turned NWO. When he became, when he like switched sides. Spray paint. What was that? Like 96 Spray paint, guys. Was it like it's a, not? I think the turn the turns ninety six because the outsiders come into WCW Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. I think May ninety six, and then by like either late May or June, I think Hogan has turned. Yeah, I remember. And, I, I remember because I was living in Nigeria. I, I I moved. I left Nigeria when I was I think ninety seven. Yeah, ninety seven. So I it, I remember I was living. So in yeah, Nigeria. you had at least a year of Hogan as a bad guy, yeah. which was crazy to me because as a kid he was like the ultimate superhero. Yeah. Also, uh, but. Yeah, it just hit me how big wrestling had to be for me to be a kid in Lagos, Nigeria, 
watching wrestling, like with my cousins, like following it that closely. Like, I mean, it must have been gigantic. It was pulling a combined 10 to 11 rating between Monday Nitro and Raw. So 20, 30 million or whatever, 20 million people or however that many that means were tuning in every night to watch that stuff. Then you were watching it overseas, like probably tons of other people were. That really was probably the most eyeballs on it that it ever had. Like it it makes a lot of money now because of streaming, but visibility wise, that was the peak. I I mean, it's insane. Cause like, I I mean, I can't, I don't remember anything from, you know, when I was like five, six years old, but I remember that. I remember, I remember the turn. um, And I remember, you know, being too scared to watch, uh, watch uh, (laughs) Undertaker's entrances. Um, And I I think the other thing about like those two thousands wrestling is like, you see how, I mean, I hate to be that guy, but like how much we've gone, I don't want to say the word woke because that has like connotations, but it's like you watch the stuff that people were saying on TV back then. And like, obviously like, like it's, there's certain things where it's good that, that, that it gets out of the, like it's no longer kind of a loud and polite company. But like there's freaking, <laughs> I mean, there's videos of, of Vince McMahon dropping N-bomb, like the dropping the N-bomb, you know, yeah. like in, but like, it was like a time. he was having people kiss his actual rear end on TV, you yeah, know, two thousand three, four, and even like the like, stuff with the woman, you know, like how they were dressed, and like I think, and just some of the stuff that people, you know, like Booker T, and like he had multiple cheat. Vince had multiple cheating angles, like with Trish Stratus on his own wife, who was in the stories as well. Like Linda McMahon was part of the stories of Vince cheating on her, and like they feuded. Like they would not do that today. Like, you wouldn't do any of these storylines today. Like, I hate to be the, oh, like, we've gotten so soft and politically correct, political correctness. But I do, like, I mean, I I also feel like race relations were better in the 90s and the early 2000s. Because, like, we could kind of, like, laugh at each other. Like, I I think that, like, when Vince McMahon, like, I mean, there's videos of of him, like, kind of wearing a do-rag and being like, yo, what up, my, like, kind of talking in, um, like, what's the Ebonics. And it's like, you know, like, it's like. I think there's like there's things when you know that there is bad intent, right? When someone's trying to like you know, like I hate to use the term punch down, but like trying to like you know belittle a community. But there's also things where someone just wants to be a part. Like I'm not saying Vince McMahon wants to be black, but like where we're like they're not laughing at you, you know? Like it's it's like a it's like good natured, right? Like I think there's a certain weakness. Like I hate the whole idea like you're not supposed to punch down. Like I think that like comedy is comedy. Like if it, like if a thing is funny, it's funny. Like I don't think that like there's some sort of stratification where it's like okay, well, crap, well I'm straight so I can't make fun like well I'm straight so I can't make fun of, you know, queer people but wait, I'm black so I guess I can make fun of a white queer person like like this sort of like where you know like like, because then it, it presupposes that there's some sort of neat hierarchy we all fit, fit into where it's like, oh, well, like, you can make fun of people beneath, you know, it's like, it almost feels like this white man burden of like, oh, like, we're better than you, so we can't make fun of you. And it's like, it's like that's, a, that's that is a, when you here. put it like that, that is a terrible, like, that is a terrible, it sounds like it's privilege, but it's at, it's still a kind of privilege. Like, yeah. we have the privilege to not even have to, to make fun or, or, or laugh. We're so good. We're so beyond. We'll just let you make fun of us. Because you have nothing and you can't even hurt me with your jokes. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like, exactly. Like, I think the whole punching down thing is so, like, so, like, I don't care. Like, you could make fun of a freaking homeless, like, homeless person. Like, it could be funny, right? Like, you, like, there's not, like, a, I mean, if you look at, like, Dave Chappelle, like, his character, he played a crackhead. Like, crackheads don't have any sort of real power except for, like, Hunter Biden or something. But, like, they're, you know, no, please don't get me freaking taken off the airwaves of Joe. Um, But, like, like, 
No, no, all that stuff's good now. They've confirmed the laptop's real. Really? Well, I know. So you're that, good. Yeah, that's true. CBS, yeah. two, two years later. I mean, I guess after the post, yeah. happened, whatever. Confirmed um, it. Yeah, um, when people, it was a CIA. I mean, the funny thing is, like, <laughs> the CIA, like, the CIA op was a bunch of ex CIA and FBI people saying it was a CIA op. You know, or saying it was like saying it was like the people the, the the misinformation was the people saying it was misinformation, um, which is you know just so uh, you know very. Uh, I mean, but all this stuff kind of led to Elon buying Twitter, which is like it became so one sided. Um, you know, and the, I think the he banned this uh, the, the Twitter banned this. Uh, satire uh thing called the babylon b and you know that sort of was oh yeah the, yeah the final straw for elon um but yeah i think the whole punching i don't even know how we got on this topic but the whole punching down i guess uh, yeah vince mcmahon like in the whole uh, 90s 2000s kind of anything goes sort of uh era of tele of, of, of uh wrestling and i think that like there's a certain sort of like you're, you're like you're basically you're saying that i'm so much better than you that i cannot joke about you like you're so beneath me that like to joke about you would be you know would be cruel and i i I mean the crazy thing about mcmahon and i I wrote about him in the washington examiner when he got booted out the crazy thing about mcmahon especially with regard to something like race relations he grew up uh, i lived for part of my childhood in eastern north carolina my brother still lives there and in that same like havelock manly williamston area my brother lives in williamston I, i grew up there for a little while like that area is seventy percent African American, and Vincent, some Vincent man, like even though he would go to private schools later on, was living in a trailer park, and he was surrounded by mostly black folks who live in that part of North Carolina. That's a majority black area. There's very, I mean, it's very likely he's just like kind of a that type. Like he understands. I don't know. Like there's not any kind of malicious intent probably yeah. in that that sense. Like yeah. he's just he's just joking as he would. It, not not to defend him or anything, but like, yeah. you know, I know sort of like what the attitudes of someone like my brother is a decade older than me are like, and they're not, they're not informed by racism. You couldn't have a job in that area, which is majority black if you were racist. Yeah. Um, or like at least outwardly like viral. That's right. You know? I, 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 yeah. I think that like, yeah, it's, I think race relations were, um, Race relations were better in the 90s and 2000s because we didn't like kind of constantly obsessively think about race, I think, which, you know, whatever. Maybe that's like a, a silly point of view, but it's, it's kind of what I think. Um, but I guess, so you, you, were, you spoke to one of my favorite writers who is a default friend, um, Catherine D. I yeah, thought, Catherine like, D. Yeah, so it's like when I was like, oh, like all these words, worlds are colliding. So I guess to bring it back to writing, like, I, so you said the best thing you've ever wrote was this, this yacht piece, right? Uh, I read, I read yeah, that. Yeah, I thought it was so strange. Well, it was interesting. So it reminded me of, I think this is something the default friend kind of has, um, but uh, I guess Catherine D, but um, like the best writers have. She doesn't want to be called default friend anymore. Okay. All right. Great. So Catherine D, she's a writer. She wants to be called Catherine D. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She's trying to get away from, that's something I think she's just like joking, but she doesn't want to be called default friend anymore. Okay. Well, I mean, her her Twitter is still default friend, but um. Yeah, I know. I know. It's always good. just like yeah. It's yeah, always yeah, yeah. It's but always she's, yeah, she's a great writer. I discovered her because she had this podcast with a friend of hers called After the Orgy, which is kind of like just it, it featured these these conversations that yeah. I, I feel like I'd never heard. I was gonna say woman, but it was really that anyone. delicious tacos guy as well. Delicious oh, yeah, tacos she, 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 and default friend. So she writes a she writes a uh, this is like so super inside baseball internet, but she writes a column with him, like a, an advice column with him. But like the podcast yeah. that I kind of discovered her from was called uh, After the Origin. It was her and her friend, and like these like uh, you know women like kind of mid late twenty, I guess late twenties, 
and like talking about things, topics in a way that I'd never really heard before. But I think, you know, she's a great writer. And one thing, like when I read that yacht piece, one thing I've thought about is that the best writers, they can write about anything and you'll read it. Um, I think, you know, he's kind of overpraised somewhat, but David Foster Wallace had this quality where like, he found a way, yeah, yeah. like he could write he found about, a way to do it. Yeah, he could write about any, like I read, you know, I read Consider the Lobster and I read a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Um, and like, you know, he had like, you know, these super esoteric, like he'll, he'll have like a, a, a 30 page essay about like the, like dictionaries. And like, you'll sit there and reading And like, I'm not an avid reader. Like I, I was an avid reader as a child. Like, you know, growing up, I would read, read a ton, you know, Judy Bloom, uh, Harry Potter, uh, JK Rowling, you know, whatever. And I just, for, for some reason, like high school and onward, I kind of, in college, especially I, I stopped reading really. Um, but like, I think that yacht piece really reminded me of a, that sort of David Foster. I mean, it wasn't a million pages like David Foster Wallace essays. No, but it reminded no. me, yeah. it was very short. I was surprised how short it was. Um, Cause I was like, oh, I could hang out with this guy all day um, and learn more about him. But um, that, that um, yeah, it had that quality of like, this is a, this is a thing I never thought I would want to read. I would want to read about, but yeah. I, it's really, it's really uh, great. Um, and so, I mean, who are your like inspirations writing wise? So I definitely got, a, I got a David Foster Wallace vibe from that piece. I, I definitely liked him, especially when I was in undergrad, when I was in undergrad at Carolina, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, like he was, he was active and he was a big deal, you know? And I, I mean, his stuff was definitely an inspiration. I mean, the first writer I read who really had a noticeable style and also could do, and I think did a lot more uh, this way than, than, David Foster Wallace did. And he was also a PhD, but he, he wasn't a, a professor. He was just somebody that you know, had studied American studies, got a PhD in like the 60s, and then began doing these big content pieces uh, with books. Uh, it was Tom Wolf, you know, who did the right stuff on the astronauts, the electric Kool-Aid acid the, test. Is he the Bonfire of the Vanities? Bonfire of the Vanities is one of his fiction works. It's kind of about that Tawana Brawley, but not really, kind of about that Tawana Brawley stuff mm. and the race stuff well, in New York I, in the 80s. Yeah, everyone, He's just brilliant. He yeah. made everything, he made everything sizzle. And like, he always got, it could be, it was always something different, but he always, like, I would read him, not the, you know what I mean? Like I knew he'd make the content work. Like it could be about anything and he'd find an angle on it. And he was also hard to pin down politically, which is something I've always shot for because I don't want the readers to see that because I feel like I want them to read the piece from beginning to end. That's just me. But I want them to try to figure that out, too. Like, where's this guy coming from? I don't want that spelled out any anywhere because I think it gets in the way of the writing. But the Tom Wolf was a, a big influence. There was a sports writer named Ralph Wiley, who I thought always did a great job of, like, you know, balancing, like, personal narratives. Like, he'd been an athlete in college and covering sports. Um, and, like, you know, this columnist, like, I could go on and on, like this columnist, Jimmy Cannon, who used to write in the New York papers in the 40s and 50s, like had this really pulpy style. There's so many writers that like inspired me and it wasn't about what they wrote about. Like, yeah, it could be about boxing or it could be about this, but it was more their voice. You know, it was more how they presented this stuff. And I was like, that's what I want to do. You know, and so like I also try as I write it across all these different places, I write in different styles and different voices and different approaches just for the fun of it, you know, like this place lets me write like this, this place lets me write like that. And that, that makes the, that makes the writing work so much less boring because a lot of what I do can be formulaic. And a lot of what I do in the corporate world is pretty formulaic, but even there, I try to mix it up a little bit. Like if I can get things in there or I do things to entertain myself, yeah, like, wait. I'm like, 
Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But I, I, yeah. yeah, I forgot. Like the CPRE thing was super random. I knew you did marketing, but I didn't know you did yeah. like a, a mega corporation. So you have this side of you that's also yeah. like corporate. I mean, it's, you know, that's yeah, yeah. Now I now I do marketing for a company that does DEI solutions and listening. Oh, so like I write diversity, DEI. equity, inclusion. Okay. Yep. All the stuff that goes into the annual reports. So I I know that world very well. You know, and I I mean. It's it's been in, and like I was covering a lot of that uh, with CBRE as well, except sustainability. That's also a big annual reporting thing. So a lot of my writing there in 2020 and 2021 was really sustainability focused. Before that, it had been uh, carbon neutral. Oh um, wow! You could I mean, so you really can write about anything. That is yeah. a uh, it's funny. Like I had, I love to. I love to. That's the other thing. I just love doing it. Like. I mean, you could just give me an assignment. Like I've got a thing, I got a white paper on like neurodiversity in the workplace I'm working on. And that's, I mean, like it is what it is, but it's interesting to me to put it together, you know? Like, yeah, I wish I loved writing. Cause I think that like, so when I left <laughs> Goldman to go to write for Blackish, I think people were like, oh, like yeah. you're following this dream. And I was like, well, no, like investment banking is like long hours and like, like, and, um, and, and like, writers actually, and, and writers get paid a lot. Like, I think like TV writers get paid a lot. Like, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not going to say yeah, that much, but really like, well. when I was in the Simpsons, uh-huh. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, but I think that like, yeah, I wish I loved, you know, like the act of, I mean, I love like coming up with a good line or like a really good joke, right? Like I love coming up with a really good, joke. even like captions, like an Instagram caption. Like, I love like a pithy uh, Instagram mm-hmm. caption, but yeah, I, I can't yeah. say that yeah. I just love to write. Um, but yeah, also, I think it's funny because the Lampoon is known for its TV writers, but John Updike, uh, George Plimpton, William yeah. Gaddis, uh, George Santayana, like all also came yeah. out of the Lampoon, um, which, but, you know, people don't really talk as much about the um, the literary uh, type of you know, figures who came out of, out of that magazine, but there are quite a few of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. I read, I read, um, it's weird. I, I do like... Um, David Foster Wallace. Although I tried to read, um, like everyone was reading, uh, and it's funny because this book has gotten like a bad rap on Twitter for some reason. It's one of those books that people, women or feminists or just women on Twitter would be like, "Oh, if you see this book, it's an infinite jest." Yep, inf- I don't have to. I, need to go, say I mean, I, I, t- I read the book. It's it's solid. See, I like tried. I feel like it's neither as bad as people think, nor as great as people think. Like I, I thought it was really I, interesting. It's long it. though. Like you gotta. It's one of those ones where you just gotta like. You gotta have time set aside for it, and who has time oh, set aside? So I for had it? time. I mean, I, I I was gonna not mention this in this episode, but what the heck? Who cares? I read, I tried to read Infinite Jest when I was. In, I spent twenty eight days in federal prison uh, like a year ago. Which is a whole other Jesus. separate story. I know. It was, yeah, it was yeah. How's that like, happen? That's a whole. That that'll be its own episode. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you got to do its own. Thing. <laughs> yeah, that'll be its thing. But I spent I spent twenty eight days there, and I I, I would read to pass the time because I was, I was in quarantine. It was during COVID. And during quarantine, oh. like you have no, um, you know, you can't leave your, it's like, it, it, so if you're in what, what's considered solitary confinement is 23 hours lockdown and one hour, one hour of, cause you know, it's, it's seen as cruel and unusual punishment to have 24 hour lockdown. So 23 hours and what with, and one hour of kind of outside your cell is considered solitary confinement. But with COVID uh, quarantine, it's you're it's, you're locked down for 24 hours. Um, I mean, I like did like, I I spent, two weeks in Texas and two weeks in in Philadelphia. And in Texas, I had a, a cellmate for like a week, but, um, and in Philly, I was, I, I got out like, I think Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, I could leave the cell for like an hour, like an hour or something. Anyway. Um, but I read, so I was just read to pass the time. Cause there was nothing else to do. Uh, when I was in, this is also how, how I arrived at the fact that you like, 
the only news you need is the weather and um really the weather and traffic because like i didn't miss any like you know i didn't have access to you know i didn't learn about like the Murdoch murders and like the gabby petito murder because that was going on then and i learned about those but like there wasn't like i just realized wait you don't need 24-hour news because i've been in here for a, a month and i didn't really miss anything um but I would read to pass the time, and I read. That was, that was when I read "Consider the Lobster" and the supposedly fun thing I'm mm-hmm. gonna do again. Those are good. And I tried to read yeah, multiple essays. They're good. Yeah, I mean, I had people send them. It's not like the prison really had those. But I tried to. <laughs> I tried to read "Infinite Jest," and I just I could not. Like I just couldn't. It was so dense. I just couldn't get through it. Um, but I did like love. Like I always heard how good his essays were, and I actually was a, in high school. Mm-hmm. I was assigned "Consider the Lobster," uh, just the essay, not the whole book, but in some sort of uh, by some English teacher um, who great choice but um when i read the whole thing i was like 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 every book every chapter every essay was so esoteric but there's only one that i skipped there's only one that i was like okay i just can't read this but like they would be on the most random things but i remember the the the, the title the titular essay for a supposedly fun thing i'll never do again i remember reading that and thinking i've never read the cruise ship yeah the cr- cruise ship he goes on a cruise ship yeah. i remember thinking that i'm thinking and feeling i've never read something that made me more certain that the person who wrote this is going to commit suicide um and like obviously i had the hindsight of knowing that he did but like and it was very beautiful it was very well written but he was able to kind of dig into the sort of like he was able to find the uh sadness and like the sort of hollowness of something that like was ostensibly like kind of fun right he was able to kind of find like you know the monotony like it's a crucial supposed to be fun but it's like this or like the sort of organized fun and like just like he was it's, it's almost like there are people who can find like the beauty in anything and he was sort of able to find the the like sorrow in anything in that essay and yeah, uh so it a, was like he found that in everything and like his short stories the same thing you'd, you'd find these moments where he's going into the head of a character or something where you're like yeah this guy's not gonna make it you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, you I, hate I, to say it, like like that level of introspection and that level of understanding of of the, like the complicated human mind you're not going to make it too long. You go, you know what I mean? Like to have to dwell in those thoughts and put them down. I mean, he did a great job. I mean, like, you know, very skilled, but one of, one of several people who you just like, you're not going to make it. Yeah. I felt terrible kind of thinking that, but I was like, Oh, like, like it's like, he probably would have said, he probably would agree with you. Yeah. I was like, Oh, reading this. I was like reading this. Like if you would, if like, if I just read this blind, I'd be like, Oh, this guy is probably going to kill himself. (laughs) Like, or or it's going to, you know, it's going to have like, you know, but it was a very beautiful essay. And it was like, the I mean, I, I might even read it again. Like it was so like, just the, now he, he was able to, I've never been on a cruise ship, but like he was able to capture the sort of, you know, the money and like, just oh, yeah, the, he does. the oxymoron of like organized fun, right? Cause fun's supposed to be like kind of spontaneous. Right. Um, so I, yeah, I thought that was amazing, but yeah, I couldn't get through uh, infinite, uh, infinite jets, but I do think, um, yeah, the yacht piece to bring it back to you like that. I, I remember cause it's free. Cause you've written so many things for you to say that. And I didn't know at the time that you've written just how much that you've written, but you said yeah. this is your favorite thing, and I this one because you said the definitely guy up there, definitely up there. There's yeah. like I, my plan with the, the the Substack for people listening, if they're listening, is to to kind of resurface some of the ones I really liked writing that came out, and you know I got paid, and they just kind of dropped off and they faded. I mean that one didn't just drop off. Like Bloomberg picked that piece up and highlighted it. What, what year was it? Or whatever that thing. What year is. was it? Twenty, I think it was twenty nineteen or no, twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. Because I'd gone to oh, Slovakia. Yeah. And then the, then the Cannes Film Festival in 2017, that's when I met that guy. And 
I was not planning to write that story. I had all this other stuff. I was doing a story on stem cells and I was doing a story on like medical tourism, but I met this guy and oh, yeah, we should probably explain like, what the, we should probably explain what the piece is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's <laughs> oh, yeah. for people that don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm taking for granted because I just you know po- reposted this recently and kind of went through it. But I was I was on an assignment that had me in Europe, and then I wound up in Cannes, and then I wound up because the publicist I was with got invited onto a yacht party. Whatever you know, I'd never been on a yacht party, just like I'd never been on a cruise ship. Um, I haven't either. So. I was like, oh, I'll go, you know. So we went to this yacht. Uh, it was this big yacht called the Yacht Chakra. And, you know, you get on the yacht, you take your shoes off, you put them in a pile, you put on these slippers, and then you go out on the deck. And, uh, you know, sure enough, Lindsay Lohan is sitting right on the deck. And sitting with her is the guy I thought she was dating, which is this guy, because he looked like Mark Anthony. And I was like, oh, is that Mark Anthony? Was there a lot of coke on the yacht? I've never been on a yacht. Almost certainly, almost certainly there was drug use going on in the little bathrooms, which just got so vile and nasty by the end of the night. Um, But almost certainly all kinds of stuff was going on. And it was clear that like women were just being bussed on by some kind of like Turkish guy who was like bringing them out by boat. For the various like richer Italian and, and French guys who looked like vampires almost, and they'd have like two of these women on their arms, you know, just these like scrawny old men, uh, real weird looking dudes, but you know, nice well, yeah, clothes. I mean, in, in, in those, in it's in those sorts of like, I mean, Hollywood is a little bit like this, like not even in like a Me Too way, but like the use of almost woman is like currency, you know, where it's yeah. like okay, like hey, like if you want to get into this party, you need to bring like. 10 super hot girl, you know, like something like that, right? Where it's like women, like it's like they, they're like almost like a gateway or like an access point in that, like in that where I'm not saying it's good or it's good or bad or whatever. I'm just saying that that's how in a lot of these kind of high powered money and whatever status areas, like that's kind of how it is. Yeah. Yeah. There was even an, an older German woman on the boat who had like a male escort or whatever with her who was, almost certainly a, a gay guy, but was paid to be there with her and like hang off her and uh, whatever. And I, again, I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm not, like, I'm not naive. I don't know this world at all. So I'm just watching it and I feel very out of place. So this guy who I thought was some kind of celebrity, because I mean, he had really expensive stuff on like, you know, fancy watch, fancy, this fancy that. Um, and he was sitting with Lindsay Lohan talking to her. So I was like, Oh, this guy's somebody, but she went on and moved off and did something else. And, he just started talking to me and I learned that he works in the field of yacht influence. So they pay him like the various people leasing or renting out the yacht for charter or trying to sell it, pay him to go to yachts and sit on them or stay on them for two or three days and take photos for his, you know, 500,000 person Instagram feeds. Well, it's bigger now. I think it's like 800,000 because you link to oh, it. In wow. the story. You link to it in the story. Um, and I went, I visited it and it's like, yeah, he's still going like, good for him i think it's like eight hundred nineteen thousand or something and the, if you looked at it you saw that he takes basically the same sort of pictures of every yacht like there's like a front-on picture and then there's some stuff going on he does like the same thing over and over and over again so it's eight hundred seventy-one thousand right now although it's funny because i remember you know people buy you were, you said in the story how people could, buy yeah. and sell yeah. like so I, was like, I was like wait is this still him but it says alex J. so i guess it's still him that's him um yeah, alex yeah. Is. um but but yeah, it's fine because you said that he didn't like he didn't love the way he came across in the article. I mean, I didn't think he came across yeah. too terribly. I think he did kind of look like a fake. I guess the whole like he's wearing other people's watches, but like I guess he has, he didn't make a great living doing this. I don't understand. 
he he said he made good money. Uh, he just didn't make enough money to buy a yacht, which was his life's goal. Like he wanted to own a yacht. Like at the well, end, like initially he wanted to be on yachts. Then he got on a yacht, and then he wanted to have a yacht because like having a yacht meant you were rich enough to maintain a yacht, which is like the only thing. After spending hundreds of days on yachts, he realized the only thing that matters is to have the amount of personal freedom that would let you buy a yacht. Like if you can buy and maintain your yacht, which costs so much every year. Yeah, I mean, there were like, you know ten or twenty. There might be like he wanted that five hundred. No, there might be like a thousand people who can afford a yacht, right? Yeah. Like that's that's, a, that's I mean, and and they didn't get there by uh, influencing. I mean, I guess influencing on a large scale, but he's not. He knew he could never do it. So like the job was becoming kind of frustrating to him. Because he would have to go around and be on these yachts that he could never own. So it's like temptation. So, I mean, that's weird though, because like it's not like he wants he's to just own punching like, the clock. But it's not. It's not his dreams to own a Ferrari or something like a yacht is so oh. is so ridiculous. Like, it's that's like you know Roman Abramovich. I mean, if you think about Ukraine, yeah, that's were, he was telling that's the best yacht. Yeah, but it's like if you think about the it's Ukraine, got yeah, if you think about the Ukraine Russia thing, like they were seizing these uh, oligarchs' yes. yachts. Like, they, these, these oligarchs are like, trying to like literally like moving their yachts at like top speeds to try and get into like international yes. waters to keep them from being seized uh, because of the. I don't even, first of all, I don't know how that's legal. Um, I mean, not that I'm not, I'm not Russia. <laughs> I'm no Russia apologist, but as I say that out, out loud, I'm like, wait, like how's that even legal? It is strange, like, right? Like we, I mean, it's essentially like it's like the days of piracy or something. We're just gonna take the ship. We're we're kind of at war. We're just gonna take. Your yeah, uh, if we we're gonna have Just to do another thing, we're gonna have to do another episode because I need to look at like what happened with that because like it does not sit, it doesn't make sense that like they can just seize your yacht like it's. It and those and the whole thing was the whole his whole point with the yachts was you're so free and you're so powerful once you have the yachts, but now like the navy can just seize your yacht, they'll just take it. You know, French navy will stop you and take your yacht. So, but even yeah. so. He worked this whole career where he's always he worked his way onto the yachts. He kind of lucked into it because he, you know, was at the right place at the right time. And then he began, got to a point where he was on yachts three hundred plus days a year. And then, uh, you know, you kind of just watch the lifestyle of people partying on the yachts, and you don't want to be them anymore. You want to be the owner of the yacht. Like yeah. you want to be, you want to be. But he also knew, like, even making good money, he could never, he could never well, get there. It's funny. There's there's like an LA sort of Hollywood version of this. So like when I, I moved to LA when I was 23, and like I was just so like I very much got wrapped up in sort of the Hollywood like the club. Like I'm not a big club person. I don't like loud music and like no. tight spaces and stuff. But like you know, like back then, like 2015, like this is pre-pandemic. Everyone's outside. Like LA clubs close yeah, yeah. too. Like it's not like like you would walk into a room and like your entire sort of like especially for you know I grew up in uh you know I just on you know like basically like my entire high school soundtrack like imagine whoever your high school soundtrack was or like the people you you were huge fans of growing up like imagine like them all just like at a party that you're at right so it's like drake it's yeah. you know it's i mean i guess i wasn't a huge bieber fan but it was like it's like drake bieber Kylie Kendall, and like there. it was it was yeah. all the the kind of young hollywood and like um and i think like a lot of times like so in hollywood like celebrities will throw parties at their house and i think people will like go and it's like you feel like you've made it, right? Like because you're, you're at Jamie Foxx's house, or you're at whoever's house with this gigantic thing. But it's like you still have to go home to like your like studio, you know, like your one bedroom, right? So it's like it's so close but so far away. And I think that is what was happening to him yeah. over and over again. He had to stay in the smallest room on any yacht he was on, while all these people, you know, would come and go on the yacht and party, and he would be there with them and even entertaining them. He was pretty entertaining, um, but. 
yeah, that was that was it. I, I mean, imagine that would get pretty old after ten years. I mean, you have to make good. I mean, I would think that because, I mean, if he's able to even sell, I'm sure the yachts are so expensive that like broke the brokerage fee. He's making good money. Yeah, yeah he's making six figures. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's all I got out of him. Yeah, I mean, there's six, but there's six like there's like a hundred thousand in six figures, but also four hundred thousand in six figures, and like there's a huge, somewhere between there. Yeah, I guess I don't huge, know. I would put him in the middle probably. Okay, for well, what no, that, he, he should that be happy. Was. I mean, he's, he's fine. He should be fair. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't stress over not owning a yacht if I made. You know, like. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I guess if your whole obsession is yachts, you would. It's just mine like, isn't. It's such a strange obsession though, because like there's really only like two. Like it's, it would be like it's not even like like I mean like it's just as hard I guess as making it to the NBA, but it's also like at least like making it to the NBA is like a thing you could be like okay I'm gonna work really really hard. Like, yeah, you did it. It's hard to work. Like you, I mean, becoming like a, a, a multi billionaire is there's it's you know whatever that's anyway, but. The point really isn't the guy. It's like the way you wrote. I guess the, the fact that this is among your favorite, or at least you said, I thought you know your favorite among your yeah, favorite. among my definitely among my favorites. It's maybe maybe the best. Like some people really like it. Uh, I think it's one of the best. I don't know which one. You know what well, I mean? Yeah. It was well, just, I, to me, it was so cool because it just fell in my lap. Where like I happened to be there. I was. I actually had my recorder because I was going to record the doctor that I was talking to, who was on the ship. But I ended up talking to this guy the whole time. Yeah, it, it gave me those David Foster Wallace vibes of like, this is a thing I would never have thought that I would read about, but or that I would, no. would want to read about, but it was super random. Um, I mean, how do you feel thinking about like, you know, you're a journalist, I guess, right? Um, not like for like, a, not like on staff at something, but like, like people hate journalists, right? Like the right hates journalists. The le- I guess the left doesn't mm-hmm. really hate them, but like, how do you feel? Because I do think Some that there's... Do. A, like, like the yeah. Chapo Trapos people hate journalists. Well, do you think that's deserved, basically, or like what do you? Because I do think there's a level of like when people get canceled and like you know a journalist is not like imagine a person who's going through like the worst day of their life and like someone's calling them and all their close friends like seeking comment, right? Like that, you know, that's not great. I mean, I have a lot of respect for journalists who who are out writing these detailed stories that you know, fill up the back pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post that nobody will ever read that that are well-sourced and they're on really interesting topics. Or they're doing, for like my friend Drew Singer, like they're doing the financial news for Bloomberg. Like they're just grinding in the financial and legal trenches every day, doing really serious reporting. I think that those folks are, I think that that's, you know, that's closer to my idea of that as a profession then I think there's there like what people think of when they think of a journalist is like somebody breaking like, you know, you know, endless political stories over and over or, you know, just kind of like, you know, helicoptering around some tragedy and trying to exploit it one way or the other. You know that I mean, that's what they think of, but that's not what the bulk of the work is. You know, it's yeah. not even like and so I have respect for all those people who are at different places on staff who just write stories and you'll read them and you won't be able to tell, maybe you'll, maybe you'll be able to tell a little bit like what they are politically or something, but I just like a good story for the sake of a story, you know, and there's a real art and a craft to putting that together. And I, I like when, so I, I respect journalists who do that. I also respect journalists who've just kind of called it down the middle, you know, for 20 or 30 years where, you know, like every election, they just kind of analyze both sides, fewer and fewer of these people nowadays. But, you know, they just kind of analyze the situation. And, like, I have a regular weekly beat with uh, Unheard where I do that. You know, my, my beat is covering the right wing. Mm. So I just analyze the right wing and what it's doing. And, you know, I try to be pretty impartial about 
you know, like, will this work as a marketing effort? Will this work as politics? Is this going to, you know, you know, this kind of stuff. Like I'm, I'm interested in that. So I, well, I, I like that sort of thing, but yeah. I don't like, I don't like like sensationalistic stuff. I don't like journalists who become the story. You know, yeah. no, I, that's fair. I think that people forget. I, I think when people think about journalists, you're right. They think about sort of negative experiences and just people who are very, who claim to be, who are supposed to be like objective, but are obviously, you know, beholden to like one side or the other. And then people who like, there was this Washington Post story where someone wrote about an offensive Halloween costume that someone had, had worn like several years prior. And like that, that person got fired. Like the person who had worn the costume apologized for the, I don't even know what the, I can't remember what the costume was. Like the yeah, those types fired. of stories, it's yeah. Like, like you know, getting people kind of fired or canceled because, like, you know, it's, it's that's that's another thing. I that's another thing that kind of led me. And one thing that I, I the first time I ever talked with Amy on the air was about this. Like, that's easy mode journalism. I hate that stuff. It's like putting the video game on easy or God mode or something where you just like I did this story. I did the story, Demolari, where for Vice in 2016. I didn't write the story, but I got paid 250 bucks to check Palmer Lucky's likes to see if Palmer Lucky, the guy that invented the Oculus Rift, if he was liking right wing tweets. Was he? I and like he was apparently. So I found some, you know, and I gave him to the guy that wrote it and he wrote up the piece and like there was no negative reaction. It got picked up in some of the bigger papers. But I was like, what did it, what was this? I just got, I just spent 30 minutes researching someone's tweets. Wait, it's like being a hall bucks. It's like being a hall monitor, yeah. like a snitch. I mean, truly, it's like, truly it's like, is with, hall monitoring. Yeah, well, I mean, with Palmer Lucky, it's, I mean, he's a billionaire. He can't like, you know, but like if you he's had done high. that, if you had done that for like some random guy and he gets fired, be, like, I destroyed that, like, their life. Yeah. That, that's what really like irks me about. Cause I also feel like people forget, you know, I, I think we're kind of past the whole cancel culture debate back when people were like, oh, cancel culture doesn't exist. It does, whatever. But I think that like people forget, or people don't forget, but I feel like the quote unquote left is very much like, Hey, you know, like America, people, like you don't get free healthcare. There's no free housing. You're, you're, you know, everything's tied to your employment, your job. And it's like, yep. and then we'll kind of cavalierly be like, Hey, like let's get this person fired from their job. <laughs> you know? And it's like, oh, yeah. and wait, we'll like, cheer it on. We'll pile on. We'll yeah, there's this we'll mob mentality of it. That's terrible. And I found the story. So a, a woman, had gone to a Washington Post uh, cartoonist party. She was white and she painted her face black and wore a name tag that read, hello, my name is Megan Kelly. Because I guess, you know, Megan Kelly had defended people wearing blackface, which is kind of funny because Megan Kelly got more flack for defending people wearing blackface than the people who have actually worn blackface. Like all the comedians, you know, like Sarah Silverman, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Jimmy, you know, I guess Jimmy Fallon, who have kind of painted their faces. But you know. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Virginia oh, Governor yeah. I mean, Jeremy Northam. I mean, yeah, they, Trudeau they is, rode that out. Yeah, I mean, it's hard that to find a pretty a picture, bad one for Trudeau. Yeah, it's hard to find a picture, a childhood picture of Trudeau where he's not in blackface. I mean, he it seemed like he was, <laughs> it seemed like he was, he was, he was in it more often than he was not. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like this thing, and I think the woman who you know she got like she wasn't famous, she didn't have any power, and she just she got like she I think she lost her. I'm I'm pretty sure she lost her job over it. Um, and it's just like it's like you like you just. It's like it feels like an abuse of power. I feel like there. I feel like there needs to be. So she was trying to. So she was trying to critique Megyn Kelly. Like she, the costume yeah. was trying to criticize Megyn Kelly. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't even. It wasn't even. I. It wasn't even. It was so like so it was sort of progressive for the era. It was making fun of you know this this person that's doing this this defending of, of these characters, but she still loses her job over having. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That's like yeah, I mean, you know, I like the intent is totally not. Yeah, I want I mean, to confirm. I want to confirm a hundred percent that she lost her job, but I'm ninety nine percent. Like I remember reading it at the time and suffered like, some know. reputational damage, surely from this. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. Um, Good lord. Yeah, it was. I'm like nine. I mean, I, I somebody know, like, got a new somebody got a new story out of it though. Well, yeah. I mean, it was the whole post George Floyd thing, right? I guess like I think people, you know, it was just weird. Um, it was weird, but yeah, I think that that whole thing, you know, that whole thing, the whole can. I mean, I think we've kind of accepted that cancel culture does exist and it's bad, but it, it's it's very. I mean, not to say that only one side does it, but it's uh, very weird. And also talking about the I, one thing I've been thinking about with the whole media and calling it down the middle. I don't know if you've been following the whole Sam Bankman Freed thing, where he, you know, he, uh, you know, FTX his 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 cryptocurrency exchange went bankrupt, you know, to the tune of billions. But I remember, like early on, like I, I'm pretty active in like crypto world and crypto. Did Twitter. you think it was going to happen? No, I mean, he was like, it was like the you know FTX was. I mean, that's why it's been so devastating for crypto is that FTX was kind of seen as like the blue chip. Like, if you're going to trust your money in one place. You know, it'd be the equivalent of like Bank of America or something, like not having your money. So, and he and he was also seen as sort of like this wonderkin, like you know, like those Zuckerberg yeah, yeah. type of like kind of semi-autistic wonderkin geniuses. Uh, and he'd also been talking to regulators and stuff. But I think one thing I realized is that all these crypto people were like upset that the New York Times wrote a straight news article about it. And I remember being like, no, like this is what news is supposed to be. Like it's supposed to kind of be like this. Like, what did they want? Like they they want like they want like pitchforks out like he committed fraud he's a thief like I'm like that's opinion like but we're just so used to like news being opinion basically like we're, we're so used yeah, to yeah. people just being like like you were saying with people shoehorning like you got a two thousand word article oh. about a video game and like by the way Trump is bad you know it's like wait this this is an article about <laughs> like and yeah, this is an article about like uh you know cooking or something and so I think it was so funny to watch. And like to be fair, I do think there might be something going on. It's like, why is the New York Times giving him such a straight down the middle sort of puff piece ish thing? Where like, if it had been somebody else, they would have probably you know, maybe they would have been they would have been more aggressive. I mean, they're more aggressive about like you know Palmer Lucky or somebody ri- liking tweets. Oh yeah. Um, so it, oh, it yeah. is and like that was a big deal. Yeah, and SBF had you know he 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 the guy had donated. He's the second highest donor to the Democrats uh, for the midterm cycle. But it was funny to watch, like, wait, like, this is what news is supposed to be. It's like, oh, you know, he declined to comment about this. You know, when asked that, he said that. Like, it, it was very much just like, the, the, this is, you know, they weren't going to say, like, hey, he's a criminal and he's a fraud. Like, first of all, that opens him up to libel, you know, in case he's not charged or he's, you know, acquitted. But it was funny. I feel like we've been so poisoned by what news was. Um, you know, I think it, it's we've been so poisoned um, that... Um, yeah, I don't know. We've been so poisoned by people who kind of like news becoming opinion that like we forget that like that's kind of, you know, it's supposed to be like, hey, the weather's this, you know, the Jets beat the Giants, you know, like it was, you know, it was yeah, 40, yeah, that's that's real information. Yeah, it was 42 to 35. Well, all right, I guess what, um, I mean, what are you working on now? Like, tell us about your Substack. Uh, so the Substack, you know, a lot of it's going to be uh, videos where I talk about the state of writing content, you know, like kind of like we're talking here. I'm just going to you know, go over probably week to week cuss stuff I've been working on. Uh, I've got interviews lined up with people in different fields that I'm going to start recording here. Uh, had a few that have come out. Uh, interviewed the author Nelson DeMille, who did the uh, the jet movie The General's Daughter with, uh, you know, wrote the book. John Travolta was in the movie adaptation. All kinds of oddball people like that. Uh, the next person I'm going to interview is uh, Sean McConnell, who, uh, Sean O'Connell, who, um, is the play-by-play announcer for the Pro Fight League, the PFL. Oh, who, but really? His whole let goal me, was to, I just want to confirm that the yeah. woman was fired. The Washington Post did get that woman fired. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess people yes, would say she got herself big. fired by wearing the, the, the costume, but the article that yeah, we surfaced. Years ago. Fired. Yeah. Anyway, so sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but go ahead. 
No, no. So I'll have this guy, Sean O'Connell, on uh, sometime after Thanksgiving, and he's going to talk about how he basically was so interested in becoming a broadcaster, a play-by-play guy, not even a color commentator, that he, after leaving the UFC, you know, he had a decent career there. He joined this PFL million-dollar tournament, and what motivated him to win it was the desire to retire immediately and become the play-by-play man for them the next year. And he talked about it throughout the tournament because he just wanted to break into the media, into journalism, which had been his background, I guess, in college. And he'd been taking other, like, you know, he'd been doing public speaking courses and stuff like that. And so he's going to talk about how he basically fought his way into a broadcasting role. Wow. That's, <laughs> which, awesome. that's, that's, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for with the stories that I'm going to be interviewing about. You know, so like when I have somebody on, that, it'll be like a weird, either they've not heard how it's done. Like, like I'd never really heard how like the, uh, you know, the, the sausage gets made uh, in Congress, you know, so I, I wanted to interview those congressmen or I, I well, I'll, I'll have you know, to tell you how the sausage, get, sausage gets made in TV one of these days. Actually, uh, we should definitely do an episode on that because I think people need to learn more about writing for shows like Blackish and The Simpsons. Like, I think that would be a great episode. People don't haven't had anybody on there who has done that. So we should plan on doing that then. Yeah, we got to do it. Uh, well, that's good. I guess where yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of any. Where can the people find you? Uh, well, they can find me oliverbateman.com, which just kind of collects everything I do. It's just kind of my, my website. They can find me at oliverbateman.com, which is Substack, where you can sign up. Most of it that comes out is free, so you can just sign up for free. It's gonna be, there's going to be more and more stuff behind the paywall, but you can, uh, you can sign up for free. Uh, and then on Twitter, at Mustache Club US, you know, I just post kind of you're also a literate like you're all, i mean you're, you're working on a book about your dad right yeah 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 that's slowly but surely coming along i i it was supposed to i was supposed to do something big with it way back in 2016 uh with a company or a publication that was called matter i was going to do like a mini book and matter was owned by ev williams who was one of the twitter people and later yep. he founded medium but the publisher or the editor of matter who was really all in on doing this with me, like not just they, they did an article with me, but they shoehorned Donald Trump into it. So my dad was my dad. It was called my father, comma, Donald Trump. And it was really supposed to be about my dad, but that election was coming up. So they shoveled Donald Trump into the piece. I'm going to actually put a rewritten version on the uh, Substack I mean- at some point. Then they brought me to New York to do a speaking event in the East Village where I, I read the piece. Other people were there doing their stuff uh, as well. So, like, there were a couple of us who had written for Matter uh, who were at this event. Um, and then the, the, the plan was over the next year to do, like, twenty to 25,000 words of, like, a new media-type book using interesting, like, making it look like – they had done one other book on, on selfies that a friend of mine had written – and they wanted to do something with this. But Mark Lotto, the editor who was heading all this up, got me too. Oh, wow. And oh. Ev just shut down Matter as a result. And so that project, I got paid out a decent amount, actually. But they killed the project. They killed the whole thing. And it was crazy. So the, that book was actually delayed by me too. And he's on the shitty media men list. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had no problems with him. But I, all I knew about Mark Lotto was he's about five feet tall. 
Yeah, I met, <laughs> I met somebody who had been on the list, and it was, you know, I mean, that caused trouble for certain people. I mean, I'm gonna be honest, I guess this is my own platform. I think that when the cracks yeah. in like liberalism started to like show, that was sort of like, so I had two sort of moments that were kind of like, whoa, like I told you that the whole kind of kids in cages thing where I really felt like, like I felt yeah. emotionally manipulated, right? Like you're tugging in my heartstring into these kids in cages, and then like you post pictures, and then yeah. you just, and they're like, wait, they're from 2014, 2015. It's like, oh, well, uh, deleted or there's literally i mean there's kind of like your wrestling reveal there it's like they broke the kayfabe for you wow that is a great way to put it that, yeah look this is great it's like a therapy session um and so they yeah they broke and i think that you know i was like wait like what like and there was well there was actually an afp uh i don't know i can't remember what afp stands for it's like something foreign press um, um anyway there's this afp article that was like you know we've done an investigation um that like um oh it's asians france press um and they had done some investigation that said like america had the you know the highest number of migrants in uh custody you know in like the you know in the 20 some sort of like thing and then like they retracted it because the number was was actually from 2015 (laughs) and so like in all the same people who would like tweeted like you know see this is how this is this is modern day you know this is the worst thing that's ever happened. They just kind of like quietly deleted those tweets. And so it just made me think, yeah, this is just not like a real thing. But I think the first thing that was sort of like my schism moment, and this is an awkward thing to say, but I think it was, it was Kavanaugh. And I think that like it, you know, Jamel Hill, who I saw you wrote like a really glowing, I think it was glowing. I didn't read the whole thing, like a glowing thing. No, it was not glowing. It was, okay. I, I basically, I, I praised her as a journalist, like her pre- uh, on ESPN Sports Center, journalism career had some really great moments. But then at the end, I kind of talked about how her biggest money and fame came from just attacking Donald Trump in the tweets. Like oh, yeah. she learned how to do the work. Her <laughs> okay. whole career was building to learning how to do the work. So I kind of like start with praise because some of her early reporting on stuff like women at the Citadel and stuff like that. In, when I was living in Raleigh, she was working for the paper there. When I was interning at the News and Observer in 99, she had just left in 98 in Raleigh, North Carolina. So like, I knew that name and I kind of followed that career uh, to an extent. Um, And she shows up on ESPN on page two and like, she's, you know, she's just kind of moving up the ranks. She ends up on sports center. And then suddenly like she's in, she's in a war with Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Donald Trump. And that made her, that made her, I can't believe it. Like five tweets made her millions of dollars. And the book is interesting because she tells you how much she made everywhere she works. Wow. Okay. First of all, first of all, it's so, I've been trying to find this story and I finally found it. So AP, AFP, Reuters, NPR retract child migrant detention story. So basically there was a November 18th, uh, 2019 story that the U S has the world's highest rate of children in detention, you know, migrant children in detention. But then they issued a, the United Nations issued a statement saying the number was not current, but was for the year 2015. And so obviously, you know, AFP, it said AFP is withdrawing the story. The author of the report has clarified that his figures do not represent the number of children currently in migration-related U.S. detention, but the total number of children in migration-related U.S. detention in 2015. We will delete this story. And so, like, it was like one of those moments where it's like, wait, like, why are you deleting this? Like, why don't you dive into why it was so high in 2015, right? And it's like, oh, like, you don't actually care about the fact that there are children in detention. You just want to thought this is a, a, a weapon you could have used against an opponent. And so I think that was like schism number two, but schism number one, and Jamel Hill wrote this, I mean, I don't, we probably have, I'm sure we have mutuals, so I don't want to be like too whatever, but like she wrote this article about Kavanaugh, which just completely missed the point. 
I'm gonna oh, find this is when she was yeah. This is like peak Jamel Hill. Yeah, this is when Jamel Hill was figuring it out. Well, she, so like, Jamel Hill was figuring out so, how to do the work. Yeah, she. I mean, so she writes this article October 12, twenty eighteen, at um on the Atlantic. What the black men who identify with Brett Kavanaugh are missing. When men of color see themselves in the embattled Supreme Court justice, they're not seeing the bigger picture. And she writes about how basically she was at, you know, she was somewhere, let's see, maybe a barber. She was somewhere and she was, okay, she was in an auditorium with 100 black men in Baltimore. When the subject pivoted to Brett Kavanaugh, she expected to hear frustration that the allegation against him had failed to derail his Supreme Court appointment. Instead, she encountered sympathy. One man stood up and asked passionately, what happened to due process? And a bunch of people applauded. And she's like, hey, these black men are not thinking in the sort of uh, way that I want them to think that they're supposed to think, you know, whatever. And she's saying, you know, hey, this is strange. But then she's like, well, it does make sense because countless times black men have had to, she says, countless times black men have had to witness the careers and reputations of other black men ruthlessly destroyed because of unproved rape and sexual assault allegations. Um, and as the Baltimore audience member also argued, if the claims were made by a white woman, expect the damage to be triple. So, you know, she's saying if anyone has, you know, the right to complain about unproved allegations or cry him to its black man, blah, 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 you know, 47% of the people exonerated over the past three decades are black. I mean, I, you don't need me to tell you that every freaking week you see some story about a guy exonerated from DNA evidence who spent 40 years in prison for, you know, something he didn't do. And so, you know, she's like, hey, you know, these disparities, blah, blah, blah. But she's like, hey, you if, if Kavanaugh were black, how many people would empathize with him? Blah, blah, blah. So anyway, she talks about these people, like this people, black men who have sort of been falsely accused and exonerated and maybe they got some settlement or money or something. But anyway, she says, but, you know, like we have to, you know, basically she's saying that, you yeah, you can look at the example and, and understand why some black men identify with Kavanaugh, but she's like, hey, you know, these black men who got screwed had none of the wealth, none of the advantages that Kavanaugh enjoyed. They had no legions of well-connected friends, no partisan defenders, no politicians rallying to their defense, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, black men have every right to be frustrated by the lack of due process and the inevitable rush to judgment they often face in, in sexual assault cases. But that's not because they've so often been treated like Kavanaugh. It's because they rarely have. And it's like, that's the point, Jamel. The point is that, like, if this white guy who went to all the right schools knows all the right people and like he you know he you know he he's has the square jawed white man face if he doesn't even get the benefit of the, i don't even call it the benefit of the doubt but if if someone could just point at him and say i'm gonna point at you and accuse you and that's enough to kind of derail you then a, some black guy who has none of that is screwed and it's like how like like the article you're, you're like arguing the counterpoint like the thing that you're writing is undermining like you're proving their point right like these black men are saying like whoa like if even this like i'm i'm like if if even this white dude who went to all the right schools knows all and, and knows the freaking president if he's getting screwed over by false allegations then like we definitely have don't have a, you know a chance and so i think that was a moment where i saw people kind of just start to throw stone you know like just completely you know like, i mean we've lived through like you know we had the you know, there was the thirteenth, I think, of this book about the Thirteenth Amendment and how, like, you know, it, it'll like basically prisoners can still be slaves. I think it's the name, like, you know, whatever. And you know, the, the, yep. there's the book, the New Jim Crow. Um, yep. You know, like there's there was obviously like that that Netflix. Um, uh, the thing, what, what was the the people, the Central Park Five, the Netflix series about the Central Park Five. So like, like there's this huge list of things of like people. Being, I mean, there's I hate to evoke that this but like, i'm obviously emmett till probably the best example and like yep. so for to, to watch kind of 
supposed kind of liberals, people who like in any other context would be saying, hey, wait a minute, like we need, we need, you know, who are always trying to like give help the person who's accused, right? Like, you know, and cash bail, um, you know, shorter sentences, this and that kind of turn around and be like, oh, like an allegation should kind of ruin everything. It may, you know, that was kind of the first, like this doesn't, this, this seems very prosecutorial. Like it seems very mob mentality. And then, you know, months later, yeah, maybe like a year later, the kids in cages thing where I was like, oh, wow, like they're kids in cages and team people kind of like, I mean, not just any, like not nobody's like the, the official house Democrat thing, like Twitter tweeted, like, you know, oversight or whatever, some sort of house committee tweeted like a picture of kids in cages and, and deleted it. Cause it was like, oh, this is from 2015. And also like some positive, you know, some, you know, people like serious people, not just like r- random people on Twitter. So I think, you know, I ultimately arrived, especially when I had my 28 day, um, uh, involuntary vacation, I was like, wait a second, I don't really need to like follow politics all that closely. Uh, or, you know, I just need to know very few things. But yeah, we keep going back to politics. But anyway, I, I love your top five of, of wrestlers. But to give you a thing about Jamel Hill, I just want to give you oh, a yeah, thing about it because I know Jamel Hill very, very well. One of Jamel Hill's famous first pieces, like when she was a high school student going into college, she wrote a really good story for the Detroit Free Press about the only white kid at her high school who was just like abused by, she's from Detroit. So it was like an all black school, basically with like one white kid in it. And he was just like a loser who got picked on by everybody all the time. And the conclusion was like, if this is how we're going to behave as a majority, what does this say about us? And that's different. You know what I mean? Like that's totally different than what she's writing in that piece that you just described to me, because she starts kind of the way that she might've started in like 1999 but then she throws in this like whole doing the work bit, you yeah, know, I mean, to flip the script. Like she, like she clearly got it at some point in her life. Like if she could figure that part out in the nineties, like she could get this other part in the two, like the twenty twenties. You know, well, I think she people, could get it. I think people are also just responding to incentives, right? Like if you yeah. kind of stoke racial tension and stuff, like if you kind of make everything as much about race. I mean, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna act like. Like a lot of things are about race. Like I'm not saying like, yeah. like don't make it about race. Like lots of things are about race. Like there's, you know, class, race, they intersect and, you know, for obvious reasons, like the history of slavery, et cetera. Like, you know, I'm not like some sort of person who, who thinks like, oh, just don't see race, don't see color. But, you know, like it, it, you get rewarded, right? Like Ibram X. Kendi and like, what was her name with the white fragility book, which was hilarious. Like the, like the number oh, one. Oh yeah, Robin DiAngelo. Yeah, the person who benefited. DiAngelo. You know, the person who benefited the most from basically George Floyd dying, aside from like the BLM, uh, kind of founders who like stole millions or sorry allegedly stole millions is allegedly uh, yeah, i'm not stole. trying to get sued um allegedly stole millions um is a white kind of hr kind yep. of, you know who you That's know right. hr person who had a new york time like so you get like the incentives yep. are aligned to kind of you know make things as much it's a kind of if that you know it's it's people are going to respond to incentives, right? And so people, you know, like Jamel, like I don't blame her because it's like, oh, like this is going to, this is what's going to get me more opportunities. And she basically says that in her book. Like she doesn't say that, but she says it, you know, and I know enough of these people, like I know enough reporters who are, you know, they're kind of lefties in their politics in real life. When you turn the camera off or the mic off and you just talk to them, it's just like, shoot, you like, you know, like it's just shooting the shit about work. And they'll say like, well, this story is going to do good for me. Or like this one's going to hit. And it might just be like character assassination, right? Or a piece that's just easy to write because, you know, it's this guy's liking some Nazis tweets or something and we're going to just bring his ass down, you know, fuck around and find out, you know, those types of stories. They write themselves and something like, meanwhile, like you, you like with your analysis of what like black men might be concerned about, 
that's like a much more complicated thing to write because you're right. Like if, if Brett Kavanaugh isn't getting due process as like, you know, Mr. All American well-off white guy, what does that mean? Anyone else is going to get who's a man. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, what is he going to get? Nothing. That's very He's true. He's going to be in real trouble. That's true. Like even taking the race, like black out of it. Like I even like, like imagine like a, a poor white person watching that. And like people say like, I mean, I'm not like that back then I was following politics more closely, but people were saying that like they basically overplayed their hands there. And it's one of the reasons that they got like they, I think there was the red, the, the, the blue wave in 2018, but they Republicans held on to the Senate. Um, and people, people argue that that like that was sort of people felt, you know, people kind of, it turned them into a sympathetic figure. And I think this whole yeah. you know media thing where like, I was like, there's this tweet, you know, Trump you know, announced recently and there's a tweet from NPR that's like, um, Breaking Donald Trump, who tried to overthrow the results of the 2020 yes. presidential yes. election, they put that riot, right in the title. A deadly riot at the Capitol in a desperate attempt to keep himself in power has filed to run for president again in 2024. And it's like the media is going to make the exact same mistake they made in 2016, where it's yeah. like if the guys, in, I'm not going to say his entire appeal, but the whole appeal is like they're after me, you know, I'm, you know, they hate me. And like they can't, they, they can't even, they can't be fair. Everything they say is a lie because they like, look how much they hate me. They hate me so much. And it's like, you're just playing into that, right? Like, no, like no one, you're not changing anyone's mind by that title. Like, no one's like, no one's gonna, like, I think the media like think they have to kind of be the arbiters of truth, right? And be these arbiters of like, we're gonna like, you, these, the, the people are too dumb to think for themselves. So we have to think for them. We have to, we have to let them know that Trump is bad. It's like, no, the people like, people know, like, <laughs> like he's it's pretty, he like, yeah. people have kind of sorted yeah. into like, either they look, either they don't care, they look past it, or they don't think he's bad. But like, the thing is going to make them not, the thing is going to make them start thinking he's bad is not, like, you're preaching to the choir. You know, NPR is yep. only preaching to the choir and only giving more ammunition to the idea that he's this besieged, beleaguered person who, like, everyone's against him and like, they're only against him. And really, they're not after me. They're after you, right? Like that's it. I'm just in the way. Like that 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 meme he always posted. Like you know, they're not after. They're they're in reality. They're, they're not after me. They're after you. I'm just in the way. And so yeah, it's very. The whole thing's very silly. But I do want to end this on a no, that's not about politics. So I do I do like. All right, um, let's do it. So yeah, you're you got you got your stuff stacked. Oliver Bateman does the work. Um, you got um all your socials and okay, like let's hammer you down on top five to to get out of here. Let's hammer you. Let's nail you down on the top five because I because I, you were like oh Brett Brett Hart's actually your top ten he's not your top five I, I'm gonna say I think I'll stick with I'll say I think I I think I might be overrating HBK you know Shawn Michaels like I think that's just one of those I mean it's all childhood nostalgia for me yeah but I do think even like I feel like even if I shipped childhood nostalgia like I feel like Brett Hart that's definitely a childhood nostalgia spot like if you're you know he like I don't think his career was so long and like he had so much you know like. Like no, he had a great so for twenty plus years, twenty five okay, right. years. He like, was solid. Like, yeah, no, he tons of great matches. Like, I think Hulk. Like, I think like Hulk Hogan. Okay, if I if I said like it's not mine, but like who's like kind of overall the best or like the the most significant, I think it's Austin Rock Hogan. I mean, probably like somebody who's even older that I'm not thinking of. Like, like Bruno San Martino before them. Yeah, like who's before the, the, time. the big WWF star? Yeah, probably like, him. Also, like I mean. People, people. I feel like Ric Flair gets kind of mentioned sometimes. Ric Flair, Ric Flair should be in there somewhere. Like he's up there too. Yeah, he's up there. But I think yeah. like my personal five, it's definitely Bret Hart, Stone Cold, um, Undertaker. I mean, I, lo- yeah, I love the. I mean, I was terrified of the Undertaker. Um, I, I like him. Bret Hart, Stone Cold, Undertaker. 
Uh, oh, people, people like Kurt Angle. I guess he was addicted to painkillers. I love, I love Kurt Angle. Oh, He's from Pittsburgh. I did want to say before we get off, like, like, how do you feel about like? I mean, one thing that's so sad is that every time I would go back to Google a wrestler that I liked, they were always dead. Like almost. In, like, yeah. they, I mean, it's worse than NFL players. Like they, they die. Yeah, I like so their early. obituary, so it's good for me. Uh, <laughs> they're dying I, for me to cover them. So uh, many. No, I'm, I'm just joking. But, but yeah, there. In fact, that's how I got to know my editor at the Ringer. I would, I would talk to him and help him with some of his dead wrestler of the week articles back in the late 2000s. What? Who's that? I mean, he Who finally got in a position to hire me to do like you don't understand. Like analytics wise, wrestler obituaries do huge on the internet. Hmm. Like they, they like I cannot sell an MMA obituary, NFL. Good luck. I mean, I can, but like it's not nearly as much. But like. The, the gig I have at the ringer and what you can get for like, and, and the value that those obituaries have to just driving engagement. It's, it's incredible. Like people really remember wrestlers in this weird, weird way. Like when the undertaker dies, right. It'll be like a national oh, day of mourning. Oh, yeah. See, yeah. Like, you know, he's a legend. Um, and I, I got a whole ticker of guys that I know are close. Like Terry Funk is close. Uh, you know, Dory Funk is close. So I got this whole list of in like, uh, you know, I've got like skeletons of outlines of what I'll do when they they go. Bill of the Butcher is close, so like I know when they're gonna potentially go, because all of them people just feel so much nostalgia for them the way they they don't feel that for Tom Brady or they wouldn't feel that for you know Joe Montana or something like in the well, NFL. And they also die so young too, right? I think that's the other thing. Like, a lot know, of times, they, that's early. that's kind of that's kind of died out in the the guys who are dying in their forties and fifties are mostly dead. Like they died two thousand ten. 2011 now we're getting 70 year olds and 60 year olds and 80 year olds because okay, either the I'm medicine's getting like, better or they got off the, they got off the drugs yeah that's true drugs yeah, that was all earlier I mean, like, was, yeah those, that, those guys all dropped that's what everybody that's what made wrestlers obituary such a big market though those guys dying Yoko early Zuna. made it such a thing that people yep Oh, Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, my editor I mean, wrote all their so bits oh, for Deadspin. Bam Bam Bigelow. I didn't even know Bam Bam Bigelow. I mean, so I would go through yep. these Wikipedia yeah. rabbit holes and, and I would King even Kong know that. Like, dead. Wow, yeah. I mean, I, Big I, I Van Vader, dead. Oh, what's his name? Um, Randy Savage. Yep, yeah, it's hard to believe he's dead, but yes, dead. Dead yeah, in like 2010. Wait, didn't Scott? No, not Scott Hall. No, he's not. He, I think he almost did, but then he. Yeah, then he's he, dead. I wrote his he, obituary last year. Early yeah, this year, Scott like, Hall's dead. Yeah, I think he he like kind of escaped death a couple times because he was doing kind of not great. Yeah, he made um, he did indeed. He made it to sixty three or two. That's not bad. Yeah. I mean, Ric Flair almost died. I mean, he's uh, he almost died. I, I have been waiting on that died. one for a while. Oddly enough, if Ric Flair dies, Bill Simmons is probably going to write that obituary. Like, I'll probably um, get pushed back because, like, you know, that's like. That's like that. That's like world level, you know. Bill Simmons is yeah. one I mean, of those types of guys. There will will actually write it. Well, the the bonds we have with sports here. I mean, wrestling is a little bit different because I think wrestling is like childhood. But like, I used to, I used to never. I mean, so I used to never understand people crying about celebrities dying unless you knew them. But like when Kobe died, I freak. I I was a that I, was a big one. That was a big one. Was that a, was big. It was the biggest story it's usually world. basketball stars don't go up like that. Like that's not one. Usually, like it, it is things like the wrestler obituaries are driving, but Kobe, that was huge. That was the biggest story I've seen. I mean, obviously, aside, I think that's the biggest story I've seen. I don't want to say since nine eleven because that seems extreme, but like I can't. Like I feel like the world stopped. Like it was, it was insane. Um, 
But yeah, I cried. For like a single event, for like a single event, yeah, it was a big deal for it. Like other than like Princess Diana oh, dying before, yeah, yeah. I think he's like probably the next one that was really that big. Yeah, I can't think of a comparable you know? death in my lifetime. Like I mean, I think Diana's technically in my lifetime, but I was like a child. But I can't. Yeah, that would have been mid nineties. That would have been around the time you were watching the wrestling. So yeah, yeah it my been. mom. I mean, Africans for whatever reason, like I mean, I guess it's the col- col- colonialism. Like Africans love like the royal family and like princess like, <laughs> it's incredible like i i thought she was like a member of my family like growing up basically wow. like wow. <laughs> they they right. love uh they love the whole royal family and the intrigue but yeah um yeah there's so i remember i would go through these rabbit holes and see that oh crap all these wrestlers are dead but uh yeah so anyways i guess to wrap it up top five my personal top five i feel like i'm just throwing hpk in there because i feel like i'm supposed to but no, I, I mean I would put him in my top five. I would I would push out Bret Hart and Ric Flair and have HBK in there. I think he was that good. For me, it's just like who I miss the most or who I like. So Bret Hart, I don't know why I just I just always connected with Bret Hart. Like he had this sort he's of he's like, incredible. I, he's in my top ten. He's great. Yeah. He's the best in ring. I would say he's the best wrestling wrestler I ever saw. All his matches look great. Yeah. He made it look real. Bret Hart, Stone Cold, Hulk Hogan, um. I guess Shawn Michaels, and then I guess the fifth. I guess the, I mean I guess you have to give it to the. I mean I guess the Rock is the Rock. Like the Rock definitely deserves to be in anyone's top five. He's the greatest. Yeah, the Rock probably. I, I would hate to say it at this point. Like he's he's now proven he's the greatest in all areas. Yeah. I also uh, love NWI. He's better than Schwarzenegger. I, yeah, I loved NWI. I really like. I I'm my mind was, was blown. Yeah. The, the turn like blew my mind. Like like Scott Hall, that whole Attitude Era. Like Scott. I mean, yep. they kind of. We're, we're stone cold before stone cold like that whole attitude yeah, yeah, no, they, def- they definitely were they had they needed wbf needed to develop stone cold's character to beat the nwo in the ratings that's what that was they were there like the nwo was there in 96 but stone cold wasn't really a big thing until mid 97 so like the nwo had a whole year head start on being cool i remember the uh i think it was stone cold i think he rescued stephanie mcmahon i, I remember there was some sort of like uh, Undertaker had like the Ministry of Death or something, and it was like, yes, it was yeah, like Ministry Edge. of Darkness, yeah, Ooh, yeah, the Ministry yep. of Darkness, and it was like, who was it? It was like Edge, which later became the corporate ministry when it was revealed that Vince McMahon was running it. Oh, and I, I mean, I hated. I, I, I'm not gonna say I hated it, but I didn't like the Undertaker sort of American badass era. I loved the dark. I loved like the almost Voldemort. He loved it apparently. Movie. That's who he loved that character because he. That's who he apparently is. As a guy, like a redneck who rides a uh, motorcycle. Well, he's from Houston. That was he's his favorite. Houston. He's from Houston. Um, yeah, so that's his favorite version of the character, which is wearing like a bandana and riding a motorcycle. It was not my favorite version. My favorite version is when he wears the outfit and comes to the ring and to the music. Like, yeah, my favorite version. Uh, like I know the, he loved doing American Badass. My favorite, yeah, my favorite version is like the dark, the whole, the, the really dark stuff. Um, also, I love that Kane is like a conservative, like mayor now. Or is he a mayor? He's gonna run for. He's gonna be governor of Tennessee one day. He's gonna be governor of Tennessee in is five years. Is he still years, a mayor, or what's he now? Um, yeah, he's mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. What's his real name again? I always for, uh, Glenn Jacobs. Glenn Jacobs. Glenn Jacobs. Um, yeah. Um, so Viscera, Farouk, Bradshaw. That's what I'm looking at. Who's de- in the yeah, well, Viscera is dead. Visser that guy's dead. dead, by the I way. I don't remember yeah. Farouk. He, I mean, he's six hundred pounds. He's oh, Farouk Gangrel. is still alive. JBL Gang- is still alive. That's good. JBL, Gangrel, Edge, and Christian were also uh, part of the ministry. But yeah, I remember Edge and Christian are still wrestling. Oh wow, yeah. It's weird. I mean, sometimes I feel kind of sad that people. It's kind of like when a, when a rapper is still on tour, like an old rapper is still on tour, and it's like, uh, like shouldn't you have like saved enough money? 
they're both like they're both like so steroided out they look more muscular than they did but they also have like old man faces right you know because well, they're like approaching 50 yeah this is great well it's great talking to you I thought we, we, could, we could talk wrestling all day i mean this is great yeah, um, i mean this was a good time this was, yeah, i really well, enjoyed this one i didn't know what you were gonna do but i was like it's good i, I yeah, people getting getting you know getting industry advice here this is the way to go they should do yeah, it awesome awesome well yeah glad uh glad we were to make it make it work um and i have to, definitely have to yeah, come what have you what have you on yeah talk yeah. about hollywood writing yeah i got i got a lot to, well not uh, not a lot i still you know i have a little i have a little bit to say about it um but yeah awesome thank you Um, but yeah, awesome. Thank you.